Welcome to the Dubious Consumers Podcast for the week of January 25th. My name is Justin Hurd. My name is Nathan Steinman. What's my name? Katie Tratner. <laughs> Katie Tratner. Okay, well, I didn't know. I'm. I, well, I do know what my you name could be, is. You could, you could be Catherine Tratner Hurd. That's what I was questioning now. It's Katie. Well, well to, to be fair, she is a Hurd. She just, there is no abbreviation to our last name, but she's just kind of adopted one. She took the Facebook mentality, and when she publishes her books, it will not be under the Hurd banner. It's not that unusual. I love I how know. you say we herd banner. Like there's a whole like long line of well, there's literary like, herds that I'm falling into line with. Well, there should be. That's that's all I'm saying. <laughs> he's he's starting a dynasty. We, yeah, <laughs> we, we, there we go. This is the start of the dynasty, and if you don't throw your so name in, so I'm there. gonna opt out. But that doesn't mean I don't love you. So we're actually recording this a little bit early. Um, Actually, kind of super early for us. You, technically, we're, we're actually like super on time. Well, we're yeah. early, yeah, something like that. <laughs> but um, the reason is is that Katie and I will be at Pack South this weekend, and um, probably aren't going to be able to record anything there. I'm just really looking forward to just going and sitting at tables and playing board games with a bunch of random strangers, um, and probably dragging Katie along until she goes to the women in games panels. There's only two. The whole weekend, there's only two. But there's also a bunch of LGBT stuff that you're just like, eh, I don't need to go to that. It's valuable writing time, dude. You're probably just going to be in the hotel room weeping. (sighs) Or for Miss Children. she'll log in. She'll take her laptop and she'll log into Netflix and just go, dude, 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 don't interrupt the Netflix. (laughs) I'll be there for you. Oh. That sounds really nice, actually. So, Nathan, what have you been up to over the past, well, I guess week and a half? Week and a half. So, uh, the biggest thing is that uh, I finished Jupiter's Legacy, okay. uh, which is the new, which is the last issue of book one of Mark Millar and Frank Quitely's uh, creator-owned series for under the Miller World title, which is an imprint in... Side of Image Comics. Um, it is very much uh, his commentary on superheroes having children and what happens. Like, to they have children? Wasn't it like Superman having a daughter or something like that? Essentially, yeah, it was like Superman and Wonder Woman, quote unquote, have a daughter and she has superpowers. And but everybody's had kids mostly. Cause Hasn't it taken like four years for this fucking thing to come out? No, no, it's like two years. Okay, well, that's... well, Frank Quitely is notoriously slow, and he's also been drawing Grant Morrison stuff and covers for other people. So, you know, and the the cool part is another artist is actually going to be drawing like a ten issue miniseries next year, while Frank Quitely works on book two. Ooh. Okay, <laughs> so so uh, as far as the Miller World stuff is going. Um, the interesting part of it is it doesn't play like you think it's going to play. Where a lot of comic books, it's like the hero is definitely going to win. It's Miller, so you you never know yeah. who's going to actually win until you get to the final you know the final pages, and then you're like, oh okay. And it's not too twisty. It doesn't have like a big twist 
kind of ending because you know it's book one of right. a planned multiple stage thing and i like what he's doing i like that he's kind of taking that frank miller method of okay sin city book one you know sin city book two that kind of idea of like i'm just going to do these different mini series that all kind of exist in their own worlds and they kind of connect but they're not like an overarching you know continuity because i think even in kick-ass three the last panel shows that jupiter legacy jupiter's legacy is a movie within the <laughs> world of the real world of kick-ass dun 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 yeah i mean that's his whole idea and it's very cinematic i mean it's frank quietly and uh they had previously worked together uh specifically on a run on authority the authority which was the wild storm justice league with the ultimate parody of batman and superman as gay lovers well you know i love i love apollo and midnighter thank you warren ellis yet again for providing us with Great superhero commentary, but uh, the good the good part about uh, Jupiter's Legacy is even though it is kind of violent, even though it is kind of dark, it's not like just super eighties dark, you know, where they just pile on the darkness. There is some optimism in it, and there's some really neat storytelling that he does as far as like you know jumping back and you don't really get the full origin all at once, and even then you don't really get it the whole thing you just get enough of it that you kind of understand what happened okay uh the other thing is i read a book of poetry uh called the book of goodbyes and i have completely spaced on the name but uh the fascinating thing about this series of of poems is the fact that instead of just being an overarching character story uh, you have uh, her name is Jillian Weiss. Uh, as you have some loose characters that show back up, there's a character named Big Logos who shows about back and forth, and then sometimes that person is the main character of some of the poems. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting stories. It's separated into <laughs> Act One, Intermission, Act Two, and then Curtain Call, and uh, those are the four kind of sections of the book, and. Uh, the intermission's really fascinating because it uses all these, um, there's all these birds that are then anthropomorphized as if they were like people and academics and stuff. You suddenly got Katie's attention. <laughs> and uh, the reason why is because some uh, some academic had referred to Wallace Stevens as uh, like a, the right uh, the right feathered uh, robin or whatever of poetry or whatever and so she had kind of taken that idea and kind of vamped on it itself i'm sorry i don't know why you you got that in my head <laughs> uh you say it and then i'm like boom boom yeah. how can i work this into a sentence <laughs> good student good student <laughs> but uh the last one the curtain call is uh it's not so much one long poem as it is a series of of short lines that all kind of interconnect uh she lost her leg she doesn't really t- i know she's talked about it in another book she's written but she lost uh, like the bottom most of her one of her legs and uh so she mentions you know what it's like to you know have the fake leg and have people ask about it in some of her poems but the story is there's a girl who's also an amputee who's been kidnapped. And uh, 
and this was like a real world story and she you know kind of grasps grasped onto the overall narrative of this girl hoping that they would find her and hoping that she would be okay and they found her fake leg in the woods and they're searching for her body or they're searching for her and there's all these lines that keep coming back and forth and it's just it's as as far it was it was one of my favorites uh in the book another of my favorites was from the intermission was the third poem in the intermission uh it was amazing it just i i even read it at the poetry reading last week out to a crowd because i was like this is so good (laughs) so good so good everything Um, you ever dreamed of well it was just it was just like it was well executed i mean it it told so many little tiny stories in one poem you know without having to go into like huge epic amounts of detail and it take a whole book she just like crams all these tiny details into the poem itself and really makes you connect you know with the story and even though it's about birds acting as if they were people (laughs) you know it's kind of it's just a it was a really really interesting uh a really interesting book my sister had actually got it for me for Christmas, blind. I didn't even know who she was, which is part of the reason why <laughs> I don't think that I had, uh, why her name just didn't stick in my head. Apparently, is <laughs> and that was the pouring. No one was, no one was peeing. That was pouring. Well, who knows if it my alcoholic beverage had, uh... was a little strong. It needed to be cut. I apologize for the odd sound. Yeah. Fuck. Well, you, you can edit around this. I, I, Fix well, it in post. Uh, yeah, post. yeah. I'm, I'm, we're still editing off of one channel. That's okay. the problem. <laughs> is we have a mixer, we have all that stuff. Hey, it's still going to one fucking channel. Yeah. So we'll get there. We're one, getting one of those we're days. Move, we're moving. Well, forward. well, Daryl is the ter- technical wizard, and you know he showed up last week. And I was like, hey, you want to look at my computer? Maybe some other time. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Okay. Like, Damn it. Um, that sounds amazing. You need oh. to bring it next time. Yes. I would, or I, forward it on to Justin. I'll read it. Well, I, I, forward I, it. Yeah, just mail it to me. You know, okay. You're not going to come <laughs> over anytime. Email yeah. or I don't know. Yeah. Well, I wish we, I would have. Well, okay, so I wish I would have brought it since you're going to. There's be these things called vacation. physical books. They they don't actually transport through email, like. We, I guess he could transpose. You can't it. see the death glare okay, so that she's I've, giving him. I've been, I've been reading everything online for so long lately. So uh, I've, I've, okay, I'm sure it's got to be somewhere online. This, this coming from the Maybe, woman who will not, not. Um, yeah. embrace Kindle or any e-reader because it's not a real book. Fuck you. <laughs> okay, so uh, I, 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 uh, I do, I did embrace the Kindle. Um, uh, my lovely wife Erin got me one and then uh i also i got my i got to upgrade to the fire much sooner because the job i had gave us reward points you know and i got one of the things on there for like 400 points or whatever was a kindle fire and i was like yes thank you thank you kindle fire all right uh but i would recommend jillian weiss i'll say it again since i completely failed as far as remembering her name, I remember the book. I remembered a lot about the book. Name fail. <laughs> it's okay. She doesn't need to be recognized. You know, she, she, she didn't do anything need, worth a yeah, note. She did. It's okay. She did. <laughs> but uh, 
The thing that I wanted to talk about, which is why I'm sad that Dave's not here, man. Well, he's definitely not the party man. I know. But you, you have seen Gangs of New York, correct? What, what's that movie? Gangs of New York. Uh, Gang Gizzles. Okay, cool. Have, have you seen it? I have. It's, okay. I love it. It's a good movie. So feel free to join in with... I'm actually a little intimidated by the giant microphone. What the fuck is that? The fuzz. I apologize. <laughs> do, you, do you need to cut your drink a little bit more again? I'm, I'm sure we have some psychotropic mo- mushrooms growing around somewhere in this neighborhood. Next time. I'll oh. take you up on that next time. Okay, cool. Uh, so I finally watched Gangs of New York. I did not see it until... Literally, uh, until you, bar- you were you totally bar- missing out. <laughs> well, until you I borrowed it, was, it from me and then didn't watch it the last podcast. And... Well, I think the big thing for me with Gangs of New York is it came out so soon after Titanic. You know, it was about three or four years, three or four years after Titanic. Titanic was 1997. Okay, were six a, years. Were you I'm a sorry. fan of Titanic? Gangs of no. New York came out Okay, I wasn't either. But he's like. He cries at the end of her time. So. Well, I, no. I don't cry at the end. I do cry while listening to the soundtrack. There's well, a also, difference. Also, my knowledge at that point of Martin Scorsese was very limited. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure at that point, 2004, I had probably seen <laughs> Taxi Driver. Well, and to, that's to, probably it. To be fair, a lot of people really lambast Gangs of New York as weaker Scorsese. I I don't I, I watching it I did not feel like it was weaker Scorsese. I do not feel like it is the best Scorsese. But then that's also really hard for anything to top Goodfellas for me. There's just every everything about Goodfellas. There's so much energy in the in the movie. There's so much improvisation. There's so many characters. There's so many details. You know, I, honestly, I really need to sit down and hard watch Goodfellas because always it just kind of passes over me. It's it's good. I kind of conflate it with Donnie Brasco, which I really like. Um, which you know, different different, but there's there's very sim- different movies overall. But, but there's yeah. similar there's similar plot points that they go to, and then Goodfellas goes one direction. Donnie Brasco obviously goes a different direction, but. For me, I think the reason why I like Gangs of New York is because, and it's something I think very much about our generation, we kind of fetishize that time. Uh, I, I don't know if we really fetishize. I think a lot of people fetishize um, like pre-Civil War culture. Uh, see, for me, it's what I see is... Um, Especially like in Oklahoma, t- there's a lot of... I was going to say to about 1920s is where, you know, 1920s, 1930s, you know, that time period in Gangs of New York to the 1930s, I think, is really heavily fetishized. That's why why Boardwalk Empire is such a big series. Well, I think, I think Prohibition is just one of the, uh, especially the, the Depression, Prohibition, it's such a, it's still very close to us. It's not that far away, you know, like our, you know, grandparents and great grandparents lived through it. So, you say that, but then you have to think about all the little teeny boppers that are out there right now talking about Titanic really happened. You mean that wasn't a movie? Well, but the, I'm, ta- I'm talking it's, about our, our yeah, generation, we're, we're, the the quote unquote real millennials. Yeah, you know. for, for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah, but millennials covers thirty fucking years. Yeah, it's, it's, I, just it's, go back to Generation Y. It's okay. I'm, I'm, for yeah, us. I mean, we're I mean, I, I, I guess Y. I, I guess technically we are after Generation Triple X. 
generation slacker to generation double slacker. Yeah. <laughs> then to uh, Grand Sensei slack. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the thing that for me, uh, the the movie that it reminded me of, and this is not a this is not a bad thing because I feel like there are problems with this movie, but that's <laughs> its cultural context is part of the problem. But the movie for me that it reminded me of was Gone with the Wind. See, I haven't seen Gone with the Wind. I've seen Australia. <laughs> Doesn't count. <laughs> you haven't seen movie. the number one, when adjusted for inflation, highest grossing to, movie of all time. To be fair, Katie really doesn't like Gone with the Wind. You have to say words here. <laughs> you, you can say words. It's, it's not that... I don't like... I mean, it's a classic. It's a fucking classic. Uh, yeah, guess so, what? You can have shitty classics. Well, yeah. and it's but it's not a shitty classic. It's incredibly well done. The story is wonderful. It's... Scarlet? I mean, she's the queen bitch. Well, she's I'm fantastic. Saying, yeah, you've told me personally that you don't want to watch it because of Scarlet. Well, okay, when did I say that? A long time ago. Okay. You Words. know, opinions change. I know, yeah. but, but <laughs> she hasn't watched Gone with the Wings since. I mean, yeah. well... I know I watched it a little while ago. I just watched it without you. <laughs> she does this. Yeah. It's like, hey, I really want to watch uh, Annie Hall. I walk in. She's three quarters of the way through Annie Hall. Okay. Guess I won't be watching Annie Hall anytime soon. <laughs> you know you can also watch it on your own. Yeah, and I really was not at all impressed with Annie Hall. I could talk about that. Okay. Gone with the Wind. There's nothing wrong with it. I enjoy it. I the, the ending is ambiguous. I write ambiguous endings, but I do not... Enjoy ambiguous endings in other to, places. I just tried to convince Katie to watch Castaway, and she's like, "No, it has an ambiguous ending. It's not ambiguous. You know exactly what's going to happen. It just he gets back, and she's married. Yeah, there's a story after that. Well, but he's standing at the crossroads at the end of that movie, so technically, it it's is ambiguous, ambiguous but, ending. But it, it's kind of like the game, but it's also about as ambiguous as Inception is with its yeah, well, teetering. You know, as I said with Inception, I have decided that the entire thing is a dream. Anyway. um... <laughs> I do. I, I do actually want to. Uh, there's. There's something I'll bring up later. But uh, okay, we we can have an. So back break. to gangs of New York. Uh, Sorry, no. We were talking about Gone with the well, Wind, but <laughs> but it ties into gangs of these, New York. The, uh, the thing is, is unlike Gone with the Wind, it does not try to hide the unpleasant parts, which I mean is a very quote unquote southern thing to hide. The unfavorable elements oh, of bless your culture, your heart. you know, where that New York culture is more. No, fuck it. You know, it's just that it's it's there. Deal with it. You know, and Martin Scorsese does a better job of, even though it's not technically historically accurate, because the Chinese weren't really there at that time period, and they for shoved a couple of characters together because the Chinese were mostly on the the railroad because they were building the you know the uh, railroad uh, at that time as a quick aside I do have a board game called Tammany Hall <laughs> which is awesome especially whenever you think of it in, yeah, turn, in if you're putting yourself into the setting like Gangs of New York totally get you in with Boss Tweed and all that stuff it is awesome playing it just going like okay I'm going to be part of this gang and I'm going to you know, do this be, thing I'm going to you know I'm going to forcibly move this culture into this um, district so that I can um, take it over. The, the thing that I that is, 
and the, these are the things the, the the narrative you know is very much like gone with the witness and there's this long arc to get to the end there's a long arc you know there's this huge arc and it doesn't move through time the way gone with the windows so it's kind of different in in that ways but also just the fact that I mean, the main idea of here's this localized thing that's going on in the midst of this huge historical framework. But uh, the thing that I think it does really well is also it displays the corruption of the of early America, the America that people like to think is not, you know, that America's never been corrupt, never oh, been yeah, third man. world, and we were. And we still are in some ways. If you go, if you live in a small town in Oklahoma, you that's third you world. You were you were almost at third world. <laughs> you right. know, if you live in a small town in most of the states, you can see. You know, okay, this is this is what it's like. You know, people are still way more hand to mouth. You got to really manipulate things to make things happen. You got to do all this stuff. Uh, it's way more honest in its portrayal of racism, uh, especially compared to Gone with the Wind. Uh, Gone but with the Wind very much tries to gloss over. You also have to consider the time period that Gone with, yeah. with the Wind was made because yeah. that yeah. was... There was still a lot of a, like, let's not talk about that. Yeah. But also, I mean, at the time, even in, I mean, 1930s, I mean, there's still minstrel shows going on. I was going to mm-hmm. say, it's, you know? uh, um, it was pre-code era, right? Gone with the Wind? Yeah. I do not believe so. I believe no, it was... No, because was... him saying damn was a huge deal. Well, when, yeah. when did the code come into effect? It was in the uh, 1920s. 20s. Yeah. Okay. okay. Because well, you got to remember, in 1910, some of the silent movies, they had naked people. Oh, and, yeah. Well, know. I mean, the thing I was trying to think of was uh, we have the Turner Classic Movie Archives over there with... Uh, the pre-code. Yeah, pre-code stuff, and I just couldn't remember what year. Nipples so. everywhere. As far as the eye can see, there are <laughs> starlet boobs. You want to see vintage <laughs> TNA? I'm telling you, it's fantastic. Okay, so we, we've got a new uh, website to start. It's uh, vintage, actually vintage TMZ. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure there probably already is. There probably already yeah. is, but we can be the new one, and um, we will be better. But uh, I did like the concept. Katie will be research. <laughs> I, I did like the concept of you know of the Amsterdam character coming back and. Almost finding the butcher sympathetic. Yeah. Well, he almost, until he, well the until the assassination right attempt until that moment. That's the moment that he realizes he had started something, but he didn't really understand that he felt conflicted until he saved the butcher. You know, until he saved him, and then he's like. Yeah, well... Oh, shit, like, what am I supposed to do, you know? Well, I mean, and there's, you know, obviously he kind of becomes a surrogate father figure for a while. Um, the thing I like about it is how circular everything is, because yeah, the, the, the whole thing... The symmetrical narrative. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing that got the butcher to where he was to be able to kill his father, to kill the preacher, was the exactly what happened... You know, or almost exactly what happened with Amsterdam. Yeah. And um, on, honestly, my favorite moment still of Gangs New York is the very opening with that super surreal battle, or you know, the the, like lead, how, the lead up to the battle. Whenever you're in the slums, I like how uh, when the first battle starts, there's no blood, no blood, no blood, and then it just gets more and more and more graphic as the battle goes mm-hmm. well I, I just love the you know the flute going on in the background and the little you know drum beat and then it kicks open the door complete silence white field yeah 
Uh, it's just perfect imagery. The, the one thing that I uh, that I noted, uh, and also there's the whole idea of the immigrants versus natives, which is oh, of course, yeah, which is so funny to me now that you see like you understand more why a lot of natives or Indians or uh, Native Americans or any of the tribes <coughs> that would prefer to be called their tribe than a Native American why they don't want to because there's this historical narrative of a Native American as a white person that came here in the 1600s and <laughs> yeah. we were here before then so don't call me a Native American you know um, but there there was a lot of fascinating ideas you know, as far as like how they played a lot of the a lot of the struggle of like Butcher will take in the people that he hates to kill more of the people, to get rid of the people that he hates. Right. You know, he'll take in the Irish if they're willing to kill Irish, if they're willing to take on the Irish, if they're willing to manipulate and steal from each other. I really need to watch it again. Part of the, the biggest problem of having the DVD copy, which I can't even remember if I still have it. If I do, I'll just give it to you if you want it. Um, I'm not sure if I do, but the problem is, is that it's broken up into two discs. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, it, it just happens to be that long of a movie and then wanting to keep the transfer up that high, all that stuff. But it's just one of those. I can't remember exactly where it cuts, but I think it might be the um, assassination attempt. Uh-huh. But it's still like... Uh, yeah, yeah, I think there's a whole other hour and yeah. 15 minutes or whatever. Well, you, I mean, there's a huge big battle. There's all that stuff. So The one thing that I will say that I like about it is unlike a lot of Martin Scorsese movies, I think that it... It's both a symbolist picture and kind of an expressionist picture. And the fact that he creates these set pieces that, you know, are just there for symbolic value. And they're not there because they actually happened. Like the specifically the Irish getting off the ship, getting the bowl, you know, not getting a bowl of soup, but getting handed the papers to become a citizen. Right. Getting handed their military papers, getting changed into military clothing, walking onto the ship going, are they going to feed us now? While they're also taking corpses in the wooden suit, you know, the wooden tuxedo or, you know, you know, that it's as they're coming off. Uh, And then uh, the other one for me is when he's killing Uncle Jim, the John C. Riley character in the church as he's choking him and killing him. And then his body goes down, you know, tearing the the all of the refurbishing stuff for the church down, and all of a sudden revealed is the great, you know, stained glass windows and the kind of I was like, and, and it wasn't overtly like uh, Christ narrative, you know, but it would just it played with this religious imagery of like now. They ha- now the church is behind them, and then they crucify Uncle Jim and hang him in the town square, and as you do, you know. Well, it's just the fact that like so much of what they do is symbolic until the battle. Everything from who's in charge, all of that's symbolic. You know, none of it's like, even though it is actual and real, it's all through this symbolic, you know, violence in a lot of cases. It's because of what I have done in other situations. I killed this one man, therefore I'm the man. You know, right. I'm in charge. I control the everything. And if you want to take that from me, you got to kill me. You know, 
even though there's all all these other ideas uh and i i was i do not know a lot about the draft riots and so for me it was kind of i did find out that apparently in the real historical narrative uh it was a lot more and they show how anti anti black it was but not to the extent you know cuz it was even worse than what they showed in the movie like 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 the city straight up blamed and just killed thousands of blacks in the draft riots thousands yeah. like it, it's and it's just like it's one of those things that kind of ties into this there's so many things that tie into now there's the racism there's the corruption there's the continued brutality there's the symbolic violence there's all these things that are going on now in our culture that still exist you know people still make jew jokes and people still make irish jokes and stuff it's all still there even if it's not overt and even if it's not like a direct thing where you can't get a job because you're irish or you can't get a job because you're you have a jewish background or whatever um but there's just this it, it very it doesn't feel where gone with the wind feels like a fairy tale gangs in new york does not feel like a fairy tale you know in that way of with the epic operatic story i think in some ways it is a fairy tale but it's the brothers grim original version where gone with the wind is the disney version it's the cleaned up americanized hey we're gonna sweep all the dirty bits under the table i I see what you mean yes very i I mean i was gonna say definitely feel correct Uh, it is a traditional european fairy tale not well and that's what the um i mean polished you know it, it kind of as you said i mean i i know i keep kind of returning to it and as i said it's the most striking imagery from my head is that you know obviously the dream that he has about being a kid his father shaving like even all the, there's all those elements there of like you get kind of the dirty you get oh hey the father is the hero you get him shaving you know it's the journey to him being a man you put your blood on the blade and then opens up to a pristine fairy tale that just gets bloodier and bloodier and yeah. more gruesome as you know she's ripping ears off and all that stuff. Yeah, and and showing the kind of gore and horror of how terrible it it, it can get. Like if in that much poverty and that much violence, you know, it can get this terrible where your house is burning down, but your neighbor's house is getting robbed because the guy's got to pay his firemen. You know, right. in order to make sure that they show back up to his firehouse and not another person's firehouse, but they don't even put out the building because it's already burnt to a certain point. Yeah, it's all good. You know, and it's just like let's have uh, a few brewskis. <laughs> that's how fucked up shit can actually be. And aren't we glad that it's in most places uh, that it's not that fucked up right now in America? Most places, I, I will say that. In a lot of inner city areas and in a lot of, uh, you know, ghettoized areas, whether they're uh, Italian or Chinese or, you know, whatever (laughs) racial component or heritage that they're from. But when they're in this, their own little town, how they can get kind of, uh, you know, treated like second class citizens. And then so there's still that. But I'm glad that it's not as terrible and there were good things that Tammany Hall is that uh, that Boss Tweed is talking about. That become progressive ideas, but they start out as 
mob. They started as mafia. He's a right. mafia boss. Oh, you know, yeah. that's what those political bosses were, you know? Well, I just love that idea of, you know, okay, we only have 2,000 votes in this area. Why do we have, you know, or, you know, we only have 2,000 votes. Why do we have 6,000? Yeah. You know, that whole thing. We're out of ballots. <laughs> Count them again. Yeah. Which, I mean, the Bush election had happened not too well, long yeah. before that, so... That was fresh in everybody's mind when that movie came out. Of course, but that's that's all. That's all. I so um, before Katie starts, I did want to have a grand piano update. <sighs> well, I, I Katie and I actually watched Grand Piano. Um, I watched it again. Katie watched it for the first time. Um, one thing I did mess up on there is that what is the gear mechanism is to get a key to a safety deposit box. Okay. So it's not an actual safe with tons of money. All it's right. that this guy tucked away everything, and you had to play the last four bars of this concerto, this impossible concerto, to get it, you know, you know, to open. The question is, is you know, also, this is just my avant-garde music nerd coming out. Is why didn't they just conlon non caro it and just build a player piano that can play those four measures? They they actually go or talk, kind of go that because the one person's like, why are we doing this heist? Because the piano's been in this, you know, this um, museum or something. It's been in his well, the guy's house, and he's dead. And they managed to get it so that he's uh, the lead character is, or the main character played by Elijah Wood is having it transported does to... Does Elijah Wood actually play the piano? Yes, he does. Oh, okay. Well, then good. He's a good actor. I was going to say, I actually believed he was a piano player. Um, he said the hardest part of it was having to hit his cues while talking while also playing. And just getting get super annoying and super stressful and absolutely hated that part of it. Especially when you wait four hours for a setup. Yeah. And then you only have one try. Yeah, four so, hours for another setup, and you're like, oh god. But yeah, so the basic idea, and this, you know, Katie might be able to speak to this. Um, what was your, I what what was your reaction to Grand Piano at the end of it? Me, I hate you. Uh, she had told me that she thought it was weird, but she could understand why I liked it just based off the music alone. Um, and I'm not saying that it's well, the, the, a bad movie. Yeah, I just didn't I'm saying that. My ability to suspend disbelief would be very thin. Well, okay. yes. To, to be fair, as as a person fair, the with way, a degree in well, music, it's hard to, to, to be fair. I cut to the chase of what the movie is about. You don't learn. It's an I think eighty two minutes long. You don't learn that until an hour in. Yeah, there's a big build up, and it's but up until then, it's it's very quirky and strange. It's just a very quirky and strange movie. I'll probably watch it just so I know. Um, How quirky and strange it is! Those words, quirky and strange, they're gonna the whole time. They're gonna go through. Well, your head. well that, that, like that is the thing. And Alex Winter movies. is in this movie, so and he plays a straight man, <laughs> like like he's he's not goofy or anything like that. He is a security guard, um, and the thing is, is that going back and watching it, you notice him showing up a lot more than he actually than. You John know. Cusack, by the way, that man doesn't age. He's like Keanu Reeves. He does not fucking age. I think it's called facelifts. Maybe that's it. He looks fantastic. <laughs> um, um, the the director of it was um, Eugenio Mira. I don't know. Did a few movies, but um, anyway, no, nah, he was an actor in Red Lights, which was an, another quirky um, Spanish movie. Huh. But um, 
yeah, as I basically, I just wanted to bring it up. Uh, Katie and I watched it. Um, I got a few things wrong, but the biggest thing was is that they're just trying to get a safety um, deposit or a deposit deposit box key to um, a Swiss bank account with untold fortunes in it. Uh, but, untold but, fortunes. Yeah, but uh, as I said, well, would have been really funny if the payoff was like it's another impossible music score. <laughs> that would have been beautiful to me because uh, um, well, it's one of those that it doesn't actually show you. I know, what but, is in it but if end. it was going to show you and that was the payoff. And it was another, like, uh, you know, like the lost score of something that's you know ah, never fuck. been played before. Yeah, that that that's the last line. Fuck. Yeah. But uh, credits. Speaking of, uh, do you either of you know who I'm talking about when I mentioned Kanlon, Non Caro? No. Okay. No. He's a 20th century American composer of uh, some European background that I can't remember, but. He's most famous for the fact that he uh, had all these player piano pieces that cannot be physically... They are impossible to physically play by a human because he did these weird mathematical ratios and he hand... uh, He hand um, punched every single hole in the piano rolls so they were in the exact correct musical space. And there are there are, some of them are played at ungodly tempos. Some of the rhythms are literally, literally impossible numbers, like or imaginary numbers. I was gonna say there. I know there was. You get um, like seventeen over the the square root of negative two is the is the polyrhythm or the square root of two polyrhythm is what he's well you um, know is what i know gattaca like, played with that a little bit with the, with the uh, six-fingered yeah band, they, they no like they're it would take sometimes eight pianists to play one of his player player piano pieces and then also on top of that the speed that some of them are played right. at it's not just the complexity of the rhythms it's the actual speed that sometimes that they're played at so, um, Katie, what have you been consuming? Um, primarily audiobooks, which is what I usually consume. I actually just finished something that I am hugely impressed with. And I'm pulling it up so I can refresh my memory because I didn't write it down because I didn't realize I would be quizzed. Um, <laughs> I told quiz. her she would be, but she doesn't listen. It's it's not that I don't listen well, okay, maybe I listen or block you out. I, I'm not quite sure, but it doesn't... You have a Justin that, filter? I yes. was going to say, that's what true love is. I have a Justin Look filter. Look forward to marriage. It, you'll have a X filter. But it's a filter of love. <laughs> Where they don't hear a goddamn word you say. <laughs> exactly, okay. No, they hear you. They just don't always process what you're saying. In one ear or out the other or like completely over my head. Okay, so I finished, well, okay, I listened to, since some people don't believe that audiobooks count as reading and those people are heathens. (laughs) (laughs) I think they would argue that you're the heathen. No, no, I'm not at all. Because I'm ingesting the book. I'm just ingesting it in a format that they're obviously uncomfortable with in some way. It's probably the teachings of their parents that their parents obviously failed them. I... Red Night Film by, I can't pronounce that. You pronounce that. And I I missed out on... Marisha a little... Pessel. There we go. That Whatever. sounds right. That sounds like what the audiobook guy said. So Yay! <laughs> Yay. 
I it, should be an audio book guy. <laughs> I missed out on a lot of it because if you buy the hard copy and you read it, there's all these little things you scan with your cell phone and it pulls up video and there's text messages and emails that you can all that you process but the story behind it is absolutely brilliant and i think you would really appreciate it since you're a huge horror fan but the idea is that who are you talking to you justin i I apologize i'm waving with my hands (laughs) it's okay well, this is an audio podcast and, and for which our <laughs> listeners will not be able to see. Obviously, that doesn't translate. So imagine a rather rotund blonde waving her hand at another rotund, rotund redhead. Okay, now I get so. to stab her. <laughs> she says rotund, and I just go, I just go, no. Yeah, not rotund. <laughs> okay. Neither of you are well, rotund. Fluffy. Rotund is what you see at Walmart. <laughs> fluffy. We'll go with fluffy. Okay. <laughs> fluffy. Now that we think Focus. fluffy. <laughs> focused. I am focused. Okay. Night film is about this famous horror filmmaker's daughter who goes missing and there's this huge mystery about it. And the the filmmaker has got this huge cult following and he's you know, gone into seclusion. He's this recluse and nobody knows anything about him. And there's this huge thing that everybody's wondering. So is he, is he the films that he's put out? Are they actually snuff films or are they actual horror films? And the mystery is these three very unlikely characters get together with nothing at all in common and, (coughs) and try to figure out what happened to the filmmaker's daughter. And if the filmmaker had anything to do with it and, it's really fantastic is that you don't ever meet the filmmaker, but he's this huge presence throughout the book. Kind of like he's, Rebecca. Yes, very like Rebecca, as a matter of fact, that you never you never meet him, but he looms over everything. His presence is in every word. And I was hugely impressed by the writing. The writing was just absolutely phenomenal. Phenomenal writing. The characters, the setting. I mean, immediately from the first page, you were just smacked in the face with atmosphere. I mean, it beats you up and steals your purse and you're, you know, hobbling after it. would be like, bitch, give me back my keys. <laughs> and it's just fantastic. It's wonderful. Just fantastic atmosphere. Incredible mystery. Lots of really good thriller moments. And the characters, oh, I love the characters. So good. So I read that. Yeah, it was wonderful. Uh, what else do you want to know about? Um, at the moment, I'm watching Friends. I did not watch Friends when it was coming out. What season are you on? I don't fucking know. Good. good. I'm watching it on Netflix. This and is they, progressive. What, 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 oh. what was the last episode you just watched? The last episode I just watched was Ross married the British gal who then told him, well, quit fucking around with Rachel. Or I'm never going to come back to you. Okay, I think that's like season five. Okay. Yeah. Because Netflix, um, they, they all blur and, together. Uh, blur. What's her face? Courtney Cox and Matthew Perry are... Uh, They're doing it. Okay. Yeah. Then that's like season six. That's like season six. Okay. That's like the end of season six. Okay. So. I Yeah. Yeah. Ross just basically told his British wife that, hey, I'm not going to give up my friends. And she goes, okay, yeah, the, that's this isn't going to work. And that's where it was at. It all runs together on Netflix. Well, uh, that's that's the only thing that I don't like about binge watching is you go, what episode? <laughs> yeah. did this happen in again? Well, um, <laughs> I, honestly, my my biggest, the, I like it for certain series. 
but like, but I like that they're skipping. Um, they skip intros and stuff like that a lot of the time. Problem is, is with stuff like Supernatural. Supernatural for their season finale, they always play "Carry On My Wayward Son" and give you a recap of everything that happens. If you watch on Netflix, they skip that crucial, like, "Hey, this is kind of encapsulating everything that we've done this season, and this is the shit we got to fuck with on this last episode." Um, you know, Dexter. I absolutely love the opening to that. You watch it on Netflix; it skips that every single time, and it's uh, good. That they skip the recap stuff. I don't need that every single episode. I don't need to know which characters I'm going to be dealing with. Especially when you're like watching four or five episodes in a row. Right. You just watched it. You know? But I would love to watch the intro, you know, the actual credits. Because, the titles. Yeah, they put all this, you know, I kind of felt that about um, watching Pee Wee's Playhouse with Graham. was kind of like, oh, it's interesting. I get to watch this this first time. And then every episode afterwards, it was just like, okay, we're skipping right to... You get nothing but Pee Wee every single day. Well, you can okay. do that thing called back to browse and then click on it. Oh yeah, that does not. That's not conducive to binge watching, <laughs> though. The thing about binge watching is, is that they play episode after episode, and then after like five, they're like, "Are you still here?" Yes, I'm still here. Stop <laughs> asking me. But uh, so, what have you thought of for, since you did not? Unlike some of us, watched speaking it. for myself, I watched it. Did okay at, when it was coming out? Like, how did you? I um. Okay, well, I have several friends that insist it's their favorite thing ever on the entire planet, better than milk and cookies and, you know, sliced bread and all that good stuff. And Good for them. Yeah. <laughs> and and people that are like, you have to watch it. It's everything that, every sitcom after that came after Friends was based on Friends. And if you like How You Met Your Mother, How You Met Your Mother is a version of Friends. And, and I would say a better version of Friends. <laughs> Like an actual, the, my biggest thing with friends was always like, okay, the in jokes were there, mm-hmm. and the and the they would reference things, but there was no real continuity from episode to episode. There's not. Um, each episode is you can take it or leave it. Chandler either has a new girlfriend or a new thing at his job. Yeah, Phoebe and has a new problem. You know. It's yeah, a, and and Ross and Rachel are always Ross and Rachel. At this point, I don't see there's not been no character growth. Beside the fact that... Ross is like a child. And I don't know how you can have a degree in paleontology and be that much of a walking child and never talk about your job after like the the second season. Yeah, I noticed (laughs) that. And, and, you know, it's I don't know. It's okay. I hate... I don't want to like bash it. And it's not that I would bash it. I did just hear the word hate. It's... (laughs) It's adequate. I can see where it... Where everybody tapped into it and it turns into this huge thing and it's touched everybody. Because honestly, I don't remember any other television about that time that everybody talked about. Well, well it broke I mean, a lot of barriers. It, yeah. Well, it's also kind of like Seinfeld. Seinfeld was this huge cultural thing. And you go back and watch it now and 90% of the episodes of Seinfeld can be fixed with today's technology. You know, it's just like, okay, well, we obviously we didn't have cell phones, so hey, this is going to be a huge plot point for this entire episode. Oh, wait, now, Google, hey, it's done. Yeah, it's adequate. I'm enjoying it. It's it's good background noise for when I'm keeping the baby occupied or, you know, brainstorming. Or, or, hey, there's nothing wrong with clipping coupons. There's, there's nothing wrong with doing something while watching Friends. Like, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. 
Now, if but how are you going to get the subtle ticks in Matthew Perry's face? Oh, I'm pretty sure you get all of the subtleties of Matthew Perry's face. I do have to say, okay, do you watch Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Uh, no. Okay. Always Sunny in Philadelphia is fucking phenomenal. You should watch it. It's fucking badass fucking shit. You have to, honestly, um, the thing I'll say about It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is that when you start watching it, you go, what the fuck is this? All these people are horrible. But you love them because they're god awful and they make you feel good about yourself. To be fair, Katie (laughs) Katie watched the entire first season and did not like it. It took me about six episodes to get in. It took Danny DeVito coming into the season. Yeah, once Danny DeVito comes in, it changes Um, everything. But it's basically like a live action Adult Swim television show. If you can think Aqua Teen Hunger Force, but with real people, that's... And what's the most fucked up shit that could ever happen? So there's this scene in Friends, I don't know if you remember it, but Ross has a little keyboard and he plays the keyboard and he sings, which is so like Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So maybe that's where Sunny in Philadelphia got the idea. I don't know. Well, but also, I mean, it's, you know... It's, yeah. I will will say that, like, especially as far as sexuality, Mm. because... Even though Seinfeld broke some of the barriers first, they didn't break the barriers in near the way that Friends did as far as, especially as far as people having multiple partners mm-hmm. on television. That was kind of a big and shift and Sex change. isn't dirty. It's yeah. not looked down on. You're not considered a slut or a whore or yeah. a man whore for sticking your dick in shit you shouldn't. Yeah. They're very non-judgmental about yeah. fucking lots of people. Which is as it should be. <laughs> well, it's just really tell me about this. <laughs> let's let's hear some more about this. America, uh huh. But uh, Friends was one of those things that as a as a kid, like I mean, I was probably like ten or eleven when it started coming on. Yeah, I think it started in like ninety four, ninety five. I think yeah. somebody told me. So it would have been like ten or eleven when it started, and I can. Re- and I probably didn't really start watching it until like the second or third season, but I can remember it being something that, because it was that prime time NBC block mm-hmm. at the time, uh, you know, the Thursday nights, you know, the must-see Thursday or whatever. But um, I will say that it did allow for sitcoms to go from being a one-joke, one-note show, because that's what Friends is, mm-hmm. is one joke. You know, the joke yeah. is, they're friends, they live in New York City. That's our joke! All right, everybody! <laughs> and everybody... Want, oh, no. And the other joke is, everybody secretly is in love with everybody, everybody else, else in some manner, way, or form, and that'll fuck up their lives for yeah. most of their 20s into their 30s. <laughs> At this point, I'm wondering, so do Phoebe and Joey end up together? Because everybody else is paired off. I, if, I I didn't even watch the last like three seasons because because sure at this school. point if Phoebe and Joey don't get together I'm going to riot <laughs> and it will be too late but I do not care <laughs> I will take to the streets with my signs I will throw exit cars have you all finished How I Met Your Mother yes no finish it I know how it ends no you have to actually watch it why because how the actual way that it plays out is actually makes... Well, but they created an alternate ending because so many people were pissed off with the actual ending. Okay, I do have to say, the first time I finished it... Okay, because I watched the last season twice. Because I was in that, that limbo of 
really fucking pregnant and not wanting to get out of bed. And then I had had the baby and I couldn't get out of bed anyway because she was attached to my boobs all the time. (laughs) So I watched it twice and I didn't like it the first time. The second time watching it and I catching all of the jokes that it tied up everything, everything from the entire series. It tied up everything. And I got to the end. I was like, you know what? That works. And I'm at peace with this. And it's not as bad as everybody told me it was going to be. I don't know. I just hated how the last literal two minutes made it not feel like everything else that had happened, happened. was important. Yeah. And I was just like, wait, wait a second. Like, okay, you've set, laid all these seeds, you've done all these things, and and then, really? And you, then it's you, always Robin. And, and you can go after Robin. It's okay. Well, that part... The part that they said that, but the part that that was the ending that they felt was inevitable. Because we've gone through this whole rigmarole of she's the one. Yeah. Of Tracy is the one. The girl with the yellow umbrella. The girl with the base. The girl. Right. And you, and during that last season, you go through all these details. You actually get to see bits and pieces of their relationship. They did, they did an epic job of weaving in... The seasons you you will never get to see. Yeah, but you totally feel like you did because you got the highlights. Yeah, you got all the little important. And they weaved it into the actual, you know, silly premise of it all takes place on a weekend. Yeah. You know. Like How many 20. outfits do you think they went through to film that? How many? Because he what that mustard sweater thing he wore. How many mustard sweaters did he have? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Probably a lot. <laughs> How many mustard sweaters did he have? But I, there's a conspiracy here. I can smell it. Silence. But you can see the effect that Friends had. And Friends yeah. is important in that way. You know, it's. I wouldn't say that it's terrible, but I would say that now where we're at with television, it feels a lot weaker. It's it, harder to watch. It does. It's. It definitely suffers. I don't think that it is one of those that is going to transcend time and it's going to be a timeless TV series that people return to and think that, you know, 20 years from now, is it still going to be watchable? Probably not. Only by the people who are the true fanatics and unbox sets and watch it religiously. Because the thing, things like... We got free porn. Yeah. Don't really translate in the internet age. Not at all. I just watched that episode and they're like, we can't turn the TV off because then we'll lose the free porn. I'm like, I have porn on my iPhone. (laughs) There's there's literally, if you want porn, you can find it at any time. Wow. Uh, The things that like are so 90s about it. Yeah. Just kind of. But then I guess if you were ever any part of a large group of friends that, you know, there was always that switching and going back and forth. That part is timeless. But it's it's all dressed in the 1990s and... A very did fake you watch, New York. Um, <laughs> yes, very fake New York. Did you watch that video York. of the intro without music? No. Uh, it's the most awkward thing possible because it's just them kind of dancing around to silence. You know what's funny is that's probably actually what it was like to film it. Well, I think I think that I don't think they just stripped out because you can hear like them splashing around and stuff in there, but um, it's just one of those like, oh wow! So now whenever I see just like them just doing like this, you know, David Schwimmer doing the slow mo dance, you're just like, okay, that was incredibly awkward for him and everybody else involved. Okay, wow! And so I watch that now, just 
I just get that feeling straight back. There's no like, oh yeah, fun times. They're yeah. they're partying. So Katie, was there anything else that you um, had consumed? Well, I have a hammer. Her phone is in my sights. <laughs> I consume a lot of books since I listen to them on audio. I tried listening to um, The Witches of East End, which I don't know if you're familiar with the television show. There's a television show. Okay. Um, Are you aware that the television show exists? I am aware. Okay. It's on Netflix. You could watch it. I binge watched it while um, on maternity leave. Was it worth it? It was entertaining. (laughs) Um, It's got Juliette Binoche in it and... They definitely should never do close-ups. I'm just going to throw that out there. I mean, she's lovely. She's lovely. Um, <laughs> but, she's actually a demon wrapped the, in human flesh. The book was written by, is it Melissa de la Cruz? or, And she wrote some teeny bopper vampire pornographic wannabe teen books that I tried really hard to read, but they were so fucking bad. Oh. Are, are they as bad as Anne Rice's vampire porn? I have not read those. I, I've tried. And really I, and vampire porn? Oh, they're, they're gay vampire porn, I'll too. I'll read gay vampire porn. Yeah. And it wasn't the gay... I mean, I remember is, I was reading. It's not I was reading. Like oh that, well, that's some of it is. Not. I, I was going to say I read. Graphic. Well, I was going to say. It's, I, are you talking about the main Vampire Chronicles stuff? No, okay. I'm talking about her. F- oh, literal the actual porn, porn okay, that she wrote. That. I was oh, say, she wrote the Sleeping Beauty. That's all um, BDSM. I yeah, I was going to say the, the Vampire Chronicles stuff. It's all implied yeah, stuff. No, but, but no, her. She actually has. It's all short stories and it's all porn. I'm going to look those up. It's mostly between male vampires, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And the male male stuff doesn't bother me. I mean, I remember I was reading. I had a friend who, while I was reading, you know, all this William Burroughs stuff, he was like, how can you read that stuff? I'm like, it's just <laughs> it's just sex, whatever. Who cares? So what that they're talking well, about? Dicks and buttholes. No one cares. Or actually, I don't care. Some people might. Apparently, people care too much, you know. Yeah. No. So, but... Back to uh, the witches of East End. Yeah, um, I listened. Tried listening to the audiobook. It was uh, fair. Was it the narrator or was it just the writer? Oh no, the narrator was decent. Um, but I ran out of time on it. Okay, so I checked it out from my library, and after seven days, it goes back to the library, and I had like an hour and a half left of the book. And it expired, and I would have had to check it out again to finish that hour and a half. And I decided it wasn't worth it. I I think that says everything about it. So, (laughs) Especially when you're getting to the climax. Oh, no, there were lots of those. They started early on. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I did hear that, like, the second season or whatever of Witches of Easton, like, plays up even more of the sex that's in the book or whatever. There was a lot of sex. Yeah, there was a lot of sex. And I'm really kind of surprised it wasn't labeled paranormal romance, although I guess that's starting to be a dirty word for some reason, which I really don't. It's just a market saturation. Yeah. Same thing with urban fantasy. It's just too much of it out there. Though if you do find something that does hit, you know. Well, and these aren't vampires it. getting it on and blood sucking at the thighs and whatnot. These are witches, but I guess that counts as paranormal. It does. You can, you know, pull a vampire in at any point or, you know, whatever. Or, or werewolf or anything. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I read that and didn't finish it. Um, 
right like, now. This was not as good as I thought it was. Um, it, and it wasn't bad. It's fluff. It's popcorn, and there is nothing wrong with popcorn. But sometimes, it's it's harder for me to justify reading popcorn as it is watching popcorn. That's true. But since I listen to audiobooks all day at work. I read at least 200 books last year. My goal this year is 250. So ambitious. There's. I, I, I've read two so far. Working on my third one. But I I also prefer books. Um. I right now I do listen to audiobooks as well. Um, oh. Way to go. Um. The, I infringement. <laughs> put away your goddamn phone. No. Um. I was pulling up something to reference it. Ah. Um. But I I tend to listen to like 20 hour books. You know, if if a book is under ten hours, you know it's that same old thing. Like my parents used to be, if a book has less than four hundred pages, I'm not going to read it. And that's kind of how I am with audiobooks. I like that, that's really dumb. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but oh uh, well, yeah. Yes, it is. That, so so you have to have a dick measuring contest with with the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's honestly it's one of those where um, I've listened to a few eight hour books like Ready Player One. That was, Ready Player One was not eight hours. Was it, then was it 16? I'm trying At to least. remember. It might have been Red Shirts that was eight Red hours. Red Shirts was shorter. Red Shirts was eight hours. Is, is Ready Player One the one where the guy used all the video game motifs? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I've, I've heard about the book. It's really, I'm really not... good. Um, Definitely and it go, worth it goes to a lot up. of unexpected places. And I think probably what ended up extending Red Player One is that about halfway <laughs> through it, um, it skips past. Sorry. Sorry, the unexpected places just with all of the things that we've talked yeah. about, unexpected places, dirty mind. Yeah. Well, well, there is full body shaving and uh, uh, yeah, plastic Katie and I were, suits. Katie and I were so. just thinking about the exact same thing. There's one point where the main character goes from being this scrawny nerd in a, a trailer park to having all the best gear and is now basically full body shaved, you know. This buff machine. Yeah, that just spends, you know, 18 hours a day in the VR world so he can search for this prize. Like, it's it's insane. It's, goes, it's a really interesting thing. So, so the things that will happen in uh, Asian countries before oh, yeah, here because there's less regulation on shit mm-hmm. like that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, what is it? I think um, in Korea, three people have died from doing, like, 36-hour gaming marathons. Well, I'm sure it's, it's well, probably that's, technically well, more no, than it's, that. Well, no, it's but. this year. So far oh, this year. So far. Wow. Already. Yeah. yeah. We're already up to three. <laughs> God, um, that's terrifying. Oh, yeah. So, um, I watched a movie called The Rover. Hey, hey, I wasn't done. Oh. We, d- we did switch the format, Katie. Sorry. Remember, we talked about this beforehand. It's I've okay. been drinking. I don't care. Well, and, and this is her actual first time on it is. This is true, so. and I haven't listened to so the others. We, we've, See, we've broken. This, this, this is support right here. Yeah, that's, that's I listened why you're like, Shh. to the first one. I'm sorry. Please continue. <laughs> Watched a movie called The Rover with my lovely wife, Catherine. It was wonderful. Um, did you? Uh, uh, this was. I, I did listen to the quarter to three best of, uh-huh. mostly because Justin was like, they 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 say my name <laughs> on there and they like my name. <laughs> it's like, and they do. They, yeah, they, yeah. It's like two minutes of them literally just going, Justin D. Heard. That's a. Are you sure that's a real, real name? name. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised you haven't played that for me yet. Why haven't you played that for me yet? Because I told you I wouldn't play it for you. Oh, I'm disappointed. Well, we'll, we'll be on how how many hour long road trip starting tomorrow? Um, it's only like six hours. You've got oh. enough time to listen to the best of 
Yeah. So, Best of tw- so what were you going to ask? All the way down. Uh, that was on their list, correct? That, I think that, that was on both of their lists. Yeah. And that was a, a... Is that an A24 as yes, well? Yes, it is. Because I noticed there was some heavy A24 on Actually, their list. Actually, after I watched the rover, I went and made an A24 in cap at my store, which then I tweeted to A24 and Christian Morosky. He, he he actually added me back on Twitter. I was like yeah. surprised. I yeah, was like, he, wow. Yeah, he and I had a long conversation about um, stuff. But anyway, A24 ended up retweeting it to their 18,000 followers. Woohoo! So I got like five favorites, no followers. So I'm okay. But <laughs> it was just like, oh, that's cool. No response from it. Oh, well. <laughs> it's all right. It happens. It's yeah. it's like that. That's the problem with social media is yeah. you use like. Flash gone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the rover really really good it's part of that australian cinema that just i'm not sure you know it's one of those like you can go okay japanese horror cinema you you know what that entails you know um australia just very hard gruff they talk about a collapse happening but you don't know what has happened it's a post-apocalyptic australian outback and it starts out with um it stars Guy Pierce and Robert Pattinson. Yeah. And Guy Pierce is just sitting in his um, car. Um, I don't even think he's listening to the radio at that point. I think he's just turned off and just, just sitting there and then walks in and goes and sits down, uh, presumably at a bar. And then these outlaws come wreck their car and then steal his car. And the entire movie is about him trying to get his car back. And you have no idea why. Um, he actually, the outlaws had abandoned um, one of their members who happens to be the brother of, like, the leader of the gang. And he's been shot in the gut and is about to die. And Guy Pierce takes him to a clinic to get fixed, or to get to get fixed, to get patched up. And um, That was a very Oklahoman thing. Uh, gotta, get, gotta take him to the hospital and get him fixed. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I was thinking more video game logic and yeah. stuff and programming. You gotta fix the computer, you, you know. You don't heal it, you fix it. Yeah. So, um, to get him patched up just so he can lead him to where his, his brother is and presumably his car is. And very no-nonsense. It has one of my favorite moments, which has... Um, Guy Pierce going through this town trying to find a gun. And how did I know this? I knew this. Yeah, he walks to the back, and there's these two guys playing dominoes, I believe, and they're arguing between the two of them. And he's just, I need a gun, I need a gun. And then finally, one of the guys just goes, you know, fuck, you know, cheaters, and you know, pushes it away, and then just starts walking and leads Guy Pierce out to his trailer. And he goes in and he throws down this box in front of him and has all these guns. And he's like, oh, you know, it's 400 for this, 300 for this. And Guy Pierce is looking at him, pulls, you know, racks a slide. There's a bullet in there. And the guy goes, 300. He's like, well, I haven't got 300s. Then you can fuck off. He just raises his gun and caps him. And then just walks out, walks into another place, aims it at another person to get the information he needs. And then that further spirals more by people chasing after him while he's trying to get to his car and just further convoluting stuff. But, you know, he's a no... So he raises the stakes himself by by just killing random people. Yeah, just like, okay, you're in my way. I need to get this. I need to get back to my car. Fuck you, you know. Um, What I like so much about his character is that, you know, it's definitely something that I've tried to put into my writing is he is a silent character he barely speaks. You never learn his name. Um, 
the few times he does speak, it is to, you know, basically nihilism at its best. Just, you know, God doesn't care about you. You know, God left you with here, left you here with me to die, you know. And then at one point, one of the characters, you know, Robert Pattinson's character finally kind of comes out of his shell and um, kills somebody. And next day he goes, you know, I can't stop thinking about him. Well, you shouldn't. Well, I, I just can't. It's like, no, what I'm saying is that is the price you take for taking, you know, that's the price you pay for taking a life. You should never forget somebody that you've killed, you know. And at one point you do get a story for why he is the way he is. But at that point, you don't even know if he's telling the truth or if he's lying. So that's one of the things I like so much about that. And then they do resolve the central mystery of him at the end. But. Which kind of invokes a little bit of what the butcher does in Gangs of New York. He remembers the people that he's killed himself, you know, for what purposes he's done. Right. Um, but totally recommend it. Um, as the quarter three podcast mentions, it is very interesting to watch a um, movie where guys are trying to be badasses in shorts. Yeah, it's just a cultural thing. It is. You know, you know they have to for being Australian. But the funny thing is, is Robert Pattinson, obviously American, you know. He's British. Well, okay. Yeah. Sorry, he's sorry. he's British. American. Sorry. Obviously um, part of the Western world. But also famous for playing an American right vampire. yeah so yeah. so that that is my fault but from the western world not from Australia and his character is always in jeans it was just that was like okay that's a different culture you know kind of coming up right there um, but they never explained the collapse it's you know at one point I think we were about 20 minutes into the movie Katie goes have you seen a woman yet and I'm like there is one woman and she runs a brothel of young men they're all young men. She's the only fucking woman. She's the Actually, madam. Actually, there's two women. Okay, there's that also the badass chick with a shotgun, which I liked. Um, <laughs> and then dogs are a commodity. If they're loose, they'll get eaten. And so at one point, there's a character who is keeping them inside in cages because that's the only way to keep them safe. <laughs> because otherwise, they'll get eaten. So she's got this room full of dogs and cages, which is probably one of the most depressing things I think I've ever seen in my life. Australian f- films are good at, at showing you really depressing I've seen things. things. Yeah. Um, the, go ahead. I was just going to say it reminded me of a book I read recently, but I'm not talking about what I've read recently. So no, no, you can connect it. it. You can connect um, it. I just connected it to Gangs of New York in my that, head. So. That's true. Well, um,. And now I can't remember the title of the book, but I could tell you all about what it looks like. But it's this book about this woman who lived in Australia growing up and her world is completely turned upside down and there's a fire. And I don't know. Is her world completely turned upside down by the fire? Or does the fire happen after her world is completely turned upside down? She started the fire and it changed everything about her life. And it's... I have no sympathy for it. Fast forwards to her living in Britain and she's raising sheep and there's something strange eating her sheep. And you never find out what the strange thing is at the very last page of the book is her seeing it. But as the reader, you don't know what she sees and that's the end. And it was really I kind of like that. Uh, you know, when, when, you, when they, they make your imagination fill in every, every detail. I, there is that. Um, we talked about um, but the it's bird also But it's also a writing style thing. It you is. Know? Well, uh, we if talked about the bird box previously where it's the whole thing. Have you read that? I have not read it yet. You should read it. Yeah, I I talked about it. Yeah, he, he, 
you recommended that, and I can't remember the other one you recommended. I don't remember. That. We have things. I'll have, to, yeah. I'll have to listen again. Um, but the thing with the bird box and the problem I have with it is I totally respect the idea for them not to show the creatures. The problem is, is that they don't give any sensory details for the creatures. So it, it can totally be a question of whether or not the creatures actually exist. Um, but even whenever a creature possibly is touching her, there is no sensory from it, only the sensory, the sensory detail of something moving. Which, which is one thing like Michael Crichton's a little better at giving you those right. sensory details of things when they touch people and stuff. But I remember you, that, especially in Jurassic Park and Sphere. Right. Especially in Sphere. Oh, yeah. He gives a little... Because you don't really know what it is, you know? Right. So, But he gives you enough details but, that you well, kind of... And I'm okay with that. If we never see it whatever fill in the imagination but i need something i need the you need sound. some texture yeah i need the texture of it moving across the floor i mean even if it is completely silent you would there would be a shift in movement or something like that i don't like, know i think that's one of the things i enjoyed about the book was that you didn't know that there was nothing for you to go on whatsoever except for one moment it just the, your dog is okay and the next moment your dog is mad and yeah, it just for me that's not enough. It just it just feel um, my best example to tie it into something completely different is um, and now for something completely different. Yeah, um, Neil Gaiman's um, American Gods. There's one scene in the entire book that I have a problem with. Of course and you do. Have you have you read it? Yeah. Okay. It's, I've read it, it's it the, in over a decade, it, but I have read it. Um, it's the uh, point whenever Sam is introduced. Um, he's sleeping. A, he's sleeping in the car. On the side of the road. Okay. It's winter outside. Okay. He's, has, he, has he made it to the town yet? Uh, no, he's on the outskirts. Okay. Um, I kind of have a general idea. He's woken up by a voice. He then gets out of the car and addresses the voice. And says it's kind of a male-ish voice. But we never get a description of what Sam looks like. Now, it's a tomboyish girl... But there is literally no description of her. You get that later on. So for me, reading there, I have this full tapestry. I was able to tell you exactly where he was, what you know, he was in the car on the side of the road, winter, outside of the town. But for that, he is literally talking to a white glowing orb when I think of that scene. Like it is like erased. That might just be you. There I but we've gone through and read it. There is no description for Sam. I know at that there's point. not. But there's so for me, it's like okay, this stuff will get filled in later, and that's how it feels with. Have, have you read Sandman? No. Have you read anything else Gaiman's written? Oh yeah. I mean, like any of his comics work. Not comics, no. Okay. In his comics, he does a lot of that, where there's disembodied voices and characters you won't even see sometimes for several issues that are even introduced as voices, and, and I think that's just something that he's. As a visual writer in some ways, he's not thinking, oh, he's still thinking of that kind of, he can do that when I just most of the time in a novel you can't. You can't do that as much because it's well. Every it's more other, limited. Than, yeah, and every other you know. character is perfectly, you know. And Sam, after that point, is perfectly. But I can't. My mind personally cannot go back and say, "Okay, well, I'm going to fill in these past details that don't exist here." Yeah, that is just you. 
<laughs> well, I, 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 and as I said, I know what Sam looks like, but whenever I think of that scene, I do not think of Sam sitting there. I think of how it is written at that point without any visual detail of her. Um, so the another movie Katie and I watched was called The One I Love. Which is wonderful, and it's on Netflix. Uh, see? There you go. Um, the One I Love is Mark Duplass... And oh, what is her name? Um, she's from Mad Men. Peggy from Mad Men. I can't remember her the actress's name. I, either. I have not seen any of Mad Men. <gasps> it's wonderful. It's so good. It's so surprising to hear you say that because I have heard a lot of really. I've heard a lot of men say be, it's really good. To oh. be fair, okay, and well, that's all I've ever heard is okay, men say to it's be fair, really good. Um, with Mad Men. Katie and I both watched like the first four episodes and both of us went, this person is an irredeemable piece of shit. We are not going to watch this. And then like a year and a half passed and we went, you know what? Let's pick up exactly from that episode and keep going. Aaron and I kind of did that with Breaking Bad. Like we watched the first season and we, so we started the second season and then like a couple episodes and we were like, we hate everybody (laughs) in the series. Like, and well, then, and then he, about six or eight months later, we started the second season over again, and we just and you get you, we, you we get, just get, get into it. In. Well, into and, and and it finally went for me. It was oh, he's actually the only decent fucking person here because he'll do something that completely turns around how you you know look at him when everybody else is just being a completely shit hill. And basically, each character kind of gets their moment where you go, oh, they they are doing the right thing for them. But eventually, every once in a while, they do a selfless act. Uh, the other lead character is Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth Moss. Um, but the um, also the other part is it's about advertising. It's incredibly, yes. incredibly well done. It's really just the advertising is just a background for you know an off, some little bit of office politics, but it's more about the characters and the decisions they make and and well, and commentary on the times and and. And it's also commentary on chauvinism and, and women's place in society. And, and so you have it, and I've never heard of it described as a commentary on chauvinism by anybody until now. I, like oh. everybody else has just, just been like, oh man, it's so awesome. Oh man, yeah. Oh man, he, you got to see this. He, well, like, no um, in commentary. The, in the, well, in the first um, episode, and this is the part where, you know, I was not with the character, is he. It's his uh, daughter's birthday, I believe, mm-hmm. and he is sent out to go pick up the cake. He picks up the cake, and then he literally just drives and sits underneath a bridge for like four or five hours, smoking and just taking it all in, and then drives back after the party's over, after the day's been ruined, and kind of drops off the cake. There you go. And she's like, what, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? And then as the mystery, as it, the first season is about telling you who he is and as i said i i would go to my death for don draper now you know but first time i watched it was just like no and almost everybody i've talked to has said i've started watching this show i stop about episode three or four i'm like okay push past that if you get to episode six and you still can't stand it just stop watching you need to push uh you need to take your own advice with orange is the new black I know. Mr. I just, well, I just got to get past that first one. So um, the one I love is about a couple who's going through um, marriage counseling. Because and, the um, husband cheated. 
right? Which is something you find out later on. Um, Ted Danson is their therapist. Okay. As, a as very you, creepy, handsy therapist. Well, well and he's, he, he's very good at the <laughs> creepy, handsy. And um, he suggests that they go on a retreat. Gives them this place. They go there. And everything's kind of normal. They have a really great first day together. Like, they both get stoned. They have sex. You know, it's like, okay, everything's going good. And the next morning, the wife walks in and goes, oh, we had a really good, you know, having sex what are you talking about? We didn't. We didn't have sex. I got stoned and I fell asleep on the couch over here. Wait, wait, wait. I know you think this is funny. We totally had sex. N- no, we didn't. And they learn that there's two. There's a guest house and a main house. And if one of them enters the house by themselves, there's a doppelganger of their spouse there that is the perfect version of their spouse. So, like, Mark Duplass is a bit frumpy. He's got glasses on. Um, but whenever Elizabeth Moss walks into the house, he's exercising and he's super articulate and he's able to explain, you know, look, I don't have any excuses for cheating on you. And he's got beachy, sexy hair. He does have beachy, sexy hair. <laughs> beachy, sexy Um Whereas whenever he goes in... Um, Elizabeth Moss is cooking for him and cooking bacon. That's important. Bacon is important here. I was getting to that woman. Um, like he goes for breakfast and this, he's the one who basically kind of figures out what's going on and goes, you know, she goes, well, what would you like? Or, you know, he basically, she offers to cook him breakfast and he goes, Oh, what are you cooking? She goes, Oh, I was thinking bacon. He goes, you never let me have bacon. And then realizes something's weird here, and they both walk in. House is empty, but if one of them walks in, you know it becomes locked to the other one. But they get to spend time. So Elizabeth Moss is like, "Okay, you know, everybody packs their bags, they leave, and she goes, well, what if we try this? What if we, you know, what if it's an experiment? You know, uh, you know, uh, fifteen minutes at a time.'" And she goes in for thirty minutes, and he's sitting out there, and she, "I, I don't want you waiting for me." You said 15 minutes. We didn't agree on a set, you know, on 15 minutes. And so it's all about, like, what is actually going on in this resort. Are they actual doppelgangers or are they other people who have been shaped into being doppelgangers? So it's very surprising, really interesting. It reminded me of his other movie, though. Um, Safety Not Guaranteed? Yes, Safety Not Guaranteed. So that one's a really also a really good one about a time traveler or possible time traveler. Strange, quirky, unusual, well told. Yeah. So I guess the biggest thing is like, is it is it like a Borges sort story where you, it's not really science fiction, but it's like kind of fabulous you know yes magical realism yes yeah, magical they're, they're, realism. it doesn't ever go like it never goes stepford wives or okay. something like that but they do include elements at key moments okay um but yeah so it's like okay these are real people in this situation one of them is a realist the other is an idealist they obviously have conflicting personalities but one person wants to really explore it the other one wants to measure it but also trying to keep control of his life Okay, so that sounds interesting. That one's on. Well, good. I'm glad that I brought it up to you. It's on Netflix. <laughs> you should watch it. Good job. Thank you. Good. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> um, last thing is, um, I finished reading Clive Barker's Weave World, which you had 
I was pretty. I was. You were in like the three quarters area. I yeah, think. and so is I. Heard, I, was, <laughs> I saw you post about it on Facebook and well, Nightbreed. Yeah, is Nightbreed based on no okay. uh, Nightbreed? The way you, the way it was written, I couldn't they, tell. If, well, what it was is um, I also went back and watched Nightbreed, which I've talked about before, um, but. Okay, so Weave World, um, Nightbreed is uh, based off of a novella called Cabal. And Weave World is... Weave World. Like, well, no, but Weave <laughs> World is before he wrote the Hellraiser short story? Uh, no, it was after. It was, it was after. like the first big fantasy thing he wrote after um, Hellbound Heart. Okay, so it's, but it's before Great and Secret Show, right? Yes. Okay. So the basic... So early Clive Barker. Yes, and it was his first thing where they were like... This guy's horror. There's no way he's going to be able to do fantasy. And then he still has a ton of people who come up and go, this is this got me through tons of problems and, you know, whatever. And people always wanting a sequel and all that. Um, the basic idea is that there is a um, world that has been of, you know, shapeshifters and stuff like that that has been woven into a carpet. Um, two main characters, one of them, you know, we kind of copied and talked about this before. One of them has access to the menstruum. Yeah. And, I, I love all, I love all his names. Yeah. And, uh, the other one is just like this normal Scottish kid who just happens to see the, uh, fugue after he is climbing a house to try and get back his, I believe it's a, it's a fighting rooster and falls off the side of the building and looks down and sees the carpet moving. And becomes and you know becomes obsessed with it, and there's there's a lot of stuff that goes on. I'm not sure how I feel about it because it does feel like it's three separate novellas, and basically you get like this two day window with one character, and then they're like, okay, six months is gonna pass, and we're gonna come back to this character. So one person who was a baby is now an adult who, with a tail, and he has. <coughs> He went from being this struggling group of survivors who was in the fugue, and then the fugue closed up, and a bunch of people went back into the fugue, but the rest stayed out. Well, now he's following a prophet. Where did this prophet come from? We don't know. We're introduced to the prophet after he's been doing this for a while. Um, turns out, hey, the prophet is actually the bad guy with you know layers of skin on his face, and um, he's layers actually of skin. You know, and he's um, gone through and allied him basically the main bad guy his name is shadwell he starts out as a lackey and he's got this magical coat that allows anybody to see into the coat and find their greatest desire well at one point he meets with this super overzealous cop who had had his moment of fame with some you know street gangs and now he's um convinced that all this supernatural stuff has a rational explanation and at one point shadwell and hobart meet and Shadwell uses the jacket on him, and Hobart pulls out a living flame that doesn't burn him in his hand. And so he realizes, hey, this is a guy I can do, you know, I can partner up with. And so it becomes, you know, Hobart using the police forces to track down the these magical beings, while Shadwell is kind of rising up the ranks as their fake prophet. That's the second story. They then release the fugue at that point, and. Um, Shadwell actually does a assault on the fugue, which ultimately ends up in the fugue getting destroyed. 
And so there's only, you know, a ton, you know, huge genocide. Like he kills all the leaders that are trying to get him to stop. Um, he goes towards the um, gyre to basically take over the loom so he can become a god. And then that fails. And he decides, you know what? These fucking magicians, you know, they entrance me with their raptures. So I'm going to go find the scourge, which had hunted them before, which is the entire reason they went into the loom. I'm going to go hunt down the scourge to kill these motherfuckers. So he heads out into the desert with Hobart and two um, guides. And they head out into the desert, so far into the desert that there actually are no more sand dunes. It's just flat plains. They keep going. They find this this wall with stones that are the size of houses that they climb up. Look on the other side. Nothing. And then they decide to camp out. And whenever they camp out, um, at night, they look and there are these giant jungles of basically sand-colored trees. And finds the two guides are gone, hears them screaming, finds out that uh, the thing that's inhabiting this desert is, um, oh, what is, what's the name of the angel that um, guards the Garden of Eden? Trying to remember his name. I'm trying to remember his name because it's mentioned a lot in the book. Azrael? No. No, it's not Azrael. It's... Where did I read Azrael recently? Good omens, that was it. Fuck. <laughs> I know I know it and I can't I cannot remember it whatsoever. On the tip of my tongue. Motherfucker. I can't find it either. I'm just finding all the Hey Genesis. Well because I mean it's 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 not actually in the Bible, it's in the Uriel. That's it. Uriel. So um, basically they find this giant beast that's made up of flame and darkness and hundreds of thousands of eyes that has burned out the evil of these two men who are having uh, sex and has completely ripped apart their bodies. And um, he has convinced himself that he is Uriel and that there were never any humans in the Garden of Eden but the seer kind came from there, and he hates them because they're basically, you know, droppings that found life from higher beings. So Shadwell convinces him to go, you know, basically Uriel had forgotten that the seer kind ever existed. It had been so long he had forgotten. And now Shadwell reminded him, so now he's going to go and destroy the seer kind. That's book three. <laughs> All in this one book. And at that point... The angel takes over Hobart and uses him basically as a meat puppet to <laughs> in, 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 in exact his revenge, and including like flames coming from the guy's belly and all this stuff. <laughs> um, it's and at that point, like I mentioned, there's the seer kind who started as a baby, then became an adult who was following the prophet, then realized the prophet was false, so he went to Hollywood. Like the last time we see him between book two, between that like six month expanse is him going to Hollywood. Next time we see him, he's in a limo and he's super overweight and he's just like he's just eats all the time. And the only thing that makes him recognizable is his gold eyes. 
and it's like, okay, well now he's here again. <laughs> okay, you know, it's they he, they try and tie things together, but it's like, okay, these two characters come back together for a minute, and then something happens, and the lead female has to drive off while the lead male is kept behind, and the lead male forgets everything at that point, and then it's six months before they meet again. It's like, okay, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how I feel about having big expanse of time, you know, really concentrated. 200 pages then like 50 pages that does six months and then it's like okay we've got another 200 pages of these characters together or however many hundreds of pages it is um there's lots of really cool ideas i think what kind of got me frustrated with it is that they get close to resolving them and then for me as a writer it just kind of feels like he goes well i can't resolve this yet Let's break these characters apart. Like at one point, um, here's an image you would absolutely love is she's got this. Um, Who are you pointing toward? They can't see you pointing. This is an Catherine, audio podcast. Catherine, I will stab you in your throat. Um, anyway. He, he, he won't really. I might. Um, so this is one you would love, Catherine. Um, she has a book of German fairy she tales. She flipped him off, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, Catherine, this is an audio podcast. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Um, she has this... Um, you can tell them, you know, to shut the fuck up or fuck you or whatever. It's it's explicit tagged. Of German fairy tales? I, I got nothing. Um, the lead chick and um, Hobart are sucked into this world at one point. And it is a dark forest completely made up of words. Ooh. And she okay, she right. is shooting through the trees and comes to an italic splash of color in the middle of this field and comes across this white kind of dragon worm that has you know one of its eyes missing and she realizes that this is her enemy Hobart as the worm and she is the gallant knight there to come to destroy it and then at one point um, does it bleed words? I don't think so. I don't remember it bleeding at that point. He fucking missed out. Yep. Um, Could have bled definitions. Ooh, <laughs> there even you go. better. So, um, we're, we're fixing your book, Clive. Yeah. <laughs> it only came out, what? Yeah. Almost 30, 40 years ago. Fucking Dean Koontz rewrites his shit all the time. He can revisit that shit. The edited version 10 years later. Well, Fucking Neil, Neil Gaiman did that with American Gods. And he didn't, ed- didn't fix that one scene. Um, anyway, so um, but at that part, Hobart turns <laughs> as they're as they're kind of squaring off. Hobart um, reveals his neck and asks her to kill him, and she pauses a moment as she shapeshifts into the dragon, and he becomes the wounded knight underneath there, kind of, and her going, "Oh, this is what he is," and that she's missed out her chance, and all this, and then they split apart and become enemies again where he's super fat you know he was obsessed with her before but now even more so but kind of remembers it at you know half remembered dream sort of thing why is he obsessed with her um because she's the center of all of the magic and stuff and men so he wants to fuck her probably they don't ever fuck oh well i'm disappointed but all that too much witches of eastern for you (laughs) there wasn't enough fucking in this all that being said, how what I was talking about with Nightbreed is that watching Nightbreed, there are a lot of similarities between Weave World and the director's cut of Nightbreed. I haven't seen the um, theatrical cut. But it suddenly goes from, 
okay, you have this psychiatric doctor who is manipulating his patients into um, patients into revealing Midian, which is supposed to be this world where the monsters go and can live forever. And you go from him manipulating him to find it to him killing his patient outside of Midian, realizing that his patient is alive, and then going, I have to kill all of them. And you watch it in the movie, and you're like, okay, it seems like you, you, you get pissed off at one point because he's talking about him himself living forever and that you've killed him and you've lost out on this ability. But then like the next scene, it's just like, I have to murder them all. Okay, well now, reading Weave World, I understand that he sees what they actually are. It's not, hey, you get to keep in your body. Hey, you know, you might now be in a body where your guts are spilling out of your body and you can't put them back in or you're overweight and beast and have really short Tyrannosaurus Rex arms because it's Clive Barker. Dinosaur arms. <laughs> um, and um, then he also meets a police chief who is overzealous. At one point, they're going through their munitions in there and the... Um, the so I, Nightbreed is definitely a version of it, feel, Reed, it, feel, World. it feels like he uh, he took a lot of the same archetypes now they may be in cabal i haven't got a chance to read that yet but at one point the munitions guy pulls up oh and your lovely lovely garrett and he just leans in and licks the wire and it's like okay this movie just got really weird but there's like the priest character who um has lost his faith and is a drunkard but is there to watch all the evils that happen um at Midian, and then he becomes Seerkind, and it's supposed to be him and Hobart combining to get, or you know, joining together to, you know, the, it kind of hints at them joining together to go hunt down the Seerkind. But I believe Hobart gets killed, or the Hobart stand-in gets killed pretty closely afterwards. So basically, all in all, reading Weave World helped me understand Nightbreed better and fill it out more in my mind. But Nightbreed is still a lackluster movie because. Even with that, it doesn't have context for itself. There are two characters where one character goes, I dreamed of him. And he goes, who's she? I dreamed of her. And the two characters never meet. They never talk. Like, what the fuck? How can you not have that in a movie? How can you have that not set that, up? That also me, might be a scene that was cut out from the well, theatrical. The, it, it could be. Um, they. What had happened is, is that he had a cut. They made him shorten it. And then he... Um, they thought they had lost a bunch of footage and somebody found like VHS level quality of it and cut together a cabal cut. And then they actually found in the vault, um, they added in 40 minutes more or they added in 40 minutes of alternate footage, which ultimately extended in the movie, extended the movie by 20 minutes. So as opposed to Lord of illusions, which I absolutely love where he actually, um, went and scored the entire movie and then they went, we want a shorter version. He says, okay, as long as I get to release my director's cut, that everything. So they, both versions are fully scored and built rather than having to patchwork stuff together. So that is all I've been consuming. Yay. <laughs> okay, so we will take a break real quick, and we will be right back. So this is Nerd 
this will be kind of a lightning round because my wife did not prepare. And then I this- prepared. I fucking spent hours on this shit. <laughs> How dare you say I not prepared? <laughs> you, you son of a bitch. Blaspheme. Okay, so um and then Nathan hasn't thought of a topic for the I next will have a topic while. by the end he, of he the will. So now that we've got this all labeled out, I also did not research this and did that right before I sat down. <laughs> so this is going to be See, amazing. I did, I, I did this like two days ago. I was like, See, oh, this. Oh, yeah, uh, this. Actually, um, I did it on so Sunday and on Tuesday. To so be fair, last yesterday I opened. I worked until about, what, 7 o'clock? In, or, yeah, I got home about 7 o'clock at night. I did not go to sleep. Instead, I folded laundry for the first time in nine months. I've been pregnant. And, uh, Catherine? Hmm. Your pregnancy ended six months ago. I have. She's not six months old yet. I've been breastfeeding a baby so, so that is this like. This doesn't matter. She's just um, like a the, suction hose. The, she's. Um, Last night, so last night, I did not go to sleep, Nathan. I did not go to sleep. Instead, I went into work at midnight and worked until 11.30 and then came home and fell asleep instead of having, you know, exterminators come out. So, hey, good times. Yay. So, I've got like three hours of sleep in the last three days. And we're driving tomorrow. We're getting up at 4.30, by the way. My alarm is set for 4.30. Uh, You said 5 o'clock. Okay, my alarm is set for 4.45. can you all no, no, no. I'm sorry. This is important. No, no, no. Okay. So, um, Posterity th- really needs <laughs> bickering about the time well, you're gonna we going to wake up. We are going to PAX. We need to remember this in every gory detail. So, um, no. So I will be um, keeping a bowel movement law. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> all right. That, so, that's enough out of you. You're, you're, you're done. Nerd is for three films that surprised you. Um, we did take one, obviously, off the table, which was The Phantom Menace. Be- why, did that, why was that taken off the table? Because everybody went into The Phantom Menace going, this is going to be amazing, and come out went, that was complete shit. I didn't think it was going to be amazing. I wasn't surprised by what it was at all. You don't count. You, you, you weren't the 13-year-old boy who was obsessed with Star or the, Wars, or and the, you walk in and you go... Or the thirty-year-old male who uh, was in this, you know. I grew up with Star Wars. You have no idea. I had my brother didn't have the Star Wars to stuff. Be, I had to, the Star Wars stuff to, in my house. To be fair, I I do not, and I think we kind of just experienced this with Katie perusing the DVDs. Is that she has no sense of what she was feeling before she watched a movie. And even now, I think after watching a movie, she has no sense of what she felt about a movie. No, I experience it. I I I, I let it overtake me. And then it's done, and it's gone, and I move on. Okay, so... Wait, I'm not saying that you couldn't have been obsessed with Star Wars. I'm just saying you weren't, you weren't how I... You didn't go what, through the experience oh, whatever, that I whatever. felt, personally. Chauvinist the male pig. I am a chauvinist <laughs> male pig. Okay, so... Um, no, not really. I'm, I'm actually... Stop defending quite, yourself. It just makes it seem worse. Well, actually, I mean, I'm not very chauvinistic. Um, so, um, Nerd is for top three movies yeah, that were that did surprise us. Fuck you. <laughs> and um, since Nathan will be having our topic Yay! for next for next podcast, um, he also start- don't don't let him pretend like he and Dave didn't do the same thing. Of oh, I don't even have an idea. And then during the podcast, oh yeah, let's do that. So Nathan, what is your uh, number three? My number, number number three. So 
went real quick. You should just see the look of panic on Katie's faces when she realized that they are in numbered order. So uh, time to rework your list, uh, Catherine. I think my number three uh, has to be Southland Tales. I still have not seen that. I think I own it on Blu-ray over there, and you I just do. haven't okay. watched it. Just, haven't watched just it. go take it back to the store. And oh, just really? Not worth watching Save it. yourself. Here's the but thing. The, There's the about court- three scenes that are worth watching. And it's the movie that you watch it and you go, oh, Richard E. Kelly really was a one-note person. Okay, that's not the one I was thinking about. But everybody Southland talks Tales about has uh, The Rock okay, and Sherry O'Terry. No, I'm trying to... What is, uh, everybody no talked lens. about it, though, that's like it was fucking amazing. What? No, I think like, I think they're talking about the Terry Gilliam movie, Tidelands. No, I it's remember... Whatever. I remember everybody talking about the Southland Tales because it incorporated all these different stories and it was supposed to be amazing and well what it was was it was a comic book that he wrote yeah and then the uh, second or third book of the comic book is the movie and the movie is a piece of trash Ooh, it's horribly acted by great actors like it's like intentionally bad acting it's like I'm not saying like... Holy fucking shit. Focus. Dwayne The Rock Johnson is not a Shakespearean level actor, but he can actually act his way out of a paper paper bag, you know, unlike, you know, I didn't expect a great performance out of Sherry O'Terry, but, and even Justin Timberlake has done good movies and good performances, but Southland Tales is like so disappointing like as a movie, especially after you've you've seen Donnie Darko, you've watched it four or five times, and then you watch you the director's, watch the director's cut, cut and then realize how shitty it is. No, the director's cut. I actually thought some elements of the director's cut were better. The, the, honestly, the only thing they did with the director was, I mean, they changed out the music back to what he originally wanted it to be. But well, that, I prefer the music of the original, right? And you know, I agree with you, but there. I prefer the wormhole. The extension of the wormhole explanation, but well, the the explanations they literally took from the website and just put them on there where it goes in and says, "You shall not pass" or whatever, the, you know. Yeah. But uh, so, for me, after watching Donnie Darko, great performances in there: Jake Gyllenhaal, Drew Barrymore, uh, even Maggie Gyllenhaal. A lot of the child actors even do great in that movie. This is apparently the the podcast of dropping phones. Uh, I think between me and Justin, it, our phones have hit the floor like four times. Uh, so, but Southland Tales was one of those movies I was so excited to finally see it, and I had to watch it twice because I couldn't even like take how terrible it was. Well, there's a there's a, there's some great scenes in it. There's some great musical moments in it. Uh, uh, the is it is it the the is it a killer song the yeah i'm not i've got soul but i'm not a soldier there's this whole great montage that plays like a 50s musical and it's all this great elements but it's just like it's a fucking huge pile of turd shit of a b movie you know it's it's like it's like a if trauma had made the movie i probably would have liked it i would have been like this is a good trauma movie but as like a huge big budget follow-up so you mean slither Oh, but Slither is well done. Oh, yeah. Slither is well. Of course it is. There's perf- great performances in it. The dialogue isn't clunky and messy and really uncomfortable to listen to people talk all the way through. But Southland Tales was just one of those movies. I was just like, 
Well, now I have to watch it just to see what you're talking about. <laughs> just to go. Yeah, ah, just. <laughs> my ears, my ears. Katie. Um. So, Katie, what is your number three movie that surprised you? The Godfather, because it fucking what? sucked ass. Oh, really? How much ass did it suck? A lot of fucking ass. Like all of the gay porn stars, it sucked all their asses. That's, all of them. I, I love That's my wife's of... way of words, especially whenever she talks about how she's not wanting to offend people. <laughs> she's just like, all the gay porn star asses. All of them. Everybody talks about The Godfather like it's going to be this amazing revelation. It's That it's the movie to end all movies. That it's this huge well, classic. And then you see it and it's flat and it's boring and to it's be fair, slow. To be fair, the time, whenever the time it came out, you know, it's one of those things. It's, you know, going back and listening to, you know, I don't know. I won't say necessarily Elvis Presley, but like watching Richard Pryor stand up. You know? No, that's... The, all of his mannerisms and everything, and the way he actually delivers his comedy, still stands up. That's still, I, I don't that's think still it timeless. No, I, I am. but I, what I'm saying is, a lot of that informed the stuff that's happened since. Like, um, what's the? Um, I'm trying to remember the um, the stand-up comedian who introduced kind of the talking about rather than doing setup punchline, setup punchline. Um, sorry. There's there's a couple of people. Are you thinking of Lenny Bruce? Or is That's that something. Yeah, okay. Lenny Bruce. Like his uh, sort observational of, humor. Yeah, and... observational humor. His sort of stuff. You go back and watch it. It it's not revelatory, but it's because it changed everything. But it's also like at this point, you know, close to seventy years old. It's, some of it, you but know. it's at the same, still at the same point. You watch and you go, "What's the big deal about it now?" Well, at that time, that wasn't the thing. That's kind of like Godfather. And for me, the thing that I still glom onto with Godfather, yes, it is slow, but for me, it's the small details, like when they're in the hospital scene, or, you know, they're waiting for um, Vito to be attacked, and they're standing outside, and the guy is trying to light his cigarette, and his hands just keep shaking, and he's fumbling at the lighter, and just like those small details are what draws me into Godfather now. And going, wow, this is beautifully shot and everything. It's it not was beautifully shot, but it was boring. I th- boring. I, I think the thing, uh, when I finally watched it, uh, again with my wife Erin, she was actually taking a film class at the time. And we were, we, we kept like trying to pick movies that we both hadn't seen so we could see. Uh, so, or movies we wanted to see or... I was like, I'm curious about this. And she's like, fine, we'll watch it. I got to get this done. <laughs> That's how we watched Chinatown. That was the only reason we watched oh, Chinatown. Yeah. Oh, I love Chinatown. I didn't. I, I didn't like it as much as I wanted to. I really love Jerry Goldsmith's music. Have you watched the music it again? was good. I've only watched it once. I would say that was, like, uh, honestly, that was honestly, only two years ago. I was going to so. say that that's one of the things I kind of find like the thing. Um, is one of my favorite movies now. I watched it like 30 times in a row, specifically after watching the Collative Learning stuff by Rob Agger. Um, but for the longest time, eh, it's an okay movie. Nothing special about it. It's the thing, whatever, cool effects. And then something finally clicked watching it where I was like, this is amazing. Like, the you know, it's you watch it one time, you could believe that it's uh, Windows or I can't remember the other guy's name. But... Um, 
you know, it could be their shadows in there. There's enough disparity between there's enough open endedness throughout this entire movie that you can have all of these uh, suppositions about what's going on. But uh, I think with the Godfather, the thing for me was the fact that every trope you think of a gangster movie having mm-hmm. all comes from the Godfather. It yeah. is. And yeah. having being so far removed and also after having seen things like Goodfellas and seen things like The Departed by the you know right. before I'd seen The Godfather and you're like eh, you're just kind of like I want more but you're going to The Godfather of mafia movies and going but God, well but Godfather 2 I feel like delivers on the promise of Especially because of there's so because of the and maybe it's because of the two stories right where they parallel each other in all these ways and they fall you know and you really get to this uh, deeper thing it was I will but, say but Marlon it, Brando's performance still stands up well, James Caan's kind of, performance is not no no you know? but that's the thing for me that's the weird thing about watching Al Pacino in the in those movies is this was. Back before he even really looked, you know, he was young enough to not even look like the Al Pacino, and he didn't act like the Al no, Pacino. No, he, he was he was subtle, years. he was understated, you know, and just to see him grow from being kind of this, hey, I'm kind of a quiet soul. Yeah, this is my father, you know, to being what he has to become to survive and keep the family going. And, and that's will, that's another thing that really draws me into it overall. And I will say the end, the last oh yeah, fifteen minutes of The Godfather. Or the part that I was like, okay, this is the Godfather that I thought I was getting. <laughs> you know, because you get the brutality, you get the darkness, you get the corruption of, of Oh, yeah. Uh, well, and, and, so. and the um, deceiving family so that he can keep going and just kind of seeing exactly what is going on. Um, but I do totally understand your perspective, Katie, of being like, this is a very difficult... It's, it's a movie that influenced so many people... That it's hard to watch now. Because well, everybody took from it. Everybody. And especially, and I love The Departed. The Departed, I think, is one of my favorite movies of all time. Because it's so amazing. And you watch something like The Departed and you think, it took stuff from The Godfather. Let's watch The Godfather. It's got to be good. And it's the slow, quiet simmer. And I'm like, no. Let's fucking shoot some bitches. <laughs> I don't want the slow burn. <laughs> this is a mobster movie. Let's start killing people. Well, here's my shovel. So, <clears throat> my number three is Lake Mungo. Why, well, why the shake of the head and the sigh? What? I'm just like... What? Use your words. When is this movie from? Um, it's from early 2000s, or mid-2000s, I believe. It's a, another Australian film. Okay. Um, is it a horror movie? It is a horror movie. Well, um... They're all horror movies. Surprised. The the thing I will <laughs> say about Like Mungo is that it's not so much of a horror movie. It's definitely more like, um... I would say, like, um... Sci-fi channel, like, horror, or travel channel, like, horror. So it's a TV movie, kind no, of? No, no, it's a documentary. Like... It's oh. it's completely played like a documentary about this family where the daughter has died, 
and so they're it's trying a to horror movie, horror mentry. Yeah. Um, well, and what's what's interesting about the movie is that <laughs> like it plays it, it well, and it's it it kind of defies description because it it unfortunately it is under the label of eight films to die for, but there's no jump scares, there's nothing like that. It is just like, hey, we have a documentary crew on this family that just suffered a tragic loss, and oh, hey, the son has started finding you know pictures, you know. Of the daughter, you know, finding kind of ghost images of the daughter in these pictures he's been taking. And so we started researching that and we went to her old therapist. Oh, wait, he was manufacturing these photos by dressing in the sister's clothing and kind of standing out of the way. And, oh, but hey, there was a sex scandal with her and her therapist. And, you know, the mother started to see the, you know, so there's all this weird stuff that honestly... Um, we have a friend, um, Joe, that we, um, he, big horror buff, share, shared movies with a bunch, and I gave him the movie and said, this this is a fake, you know, fake movie, but, you know, check it out and watch it. He watched it. When he gave it back to me, passed it to me, I grabbed it, he held the DVD in his hand and said, I thought you said this was fake. And I said, it is. And he goes, oh, okay, and let go of it and went... Yeah, there was one part, which was the sex scandal part, where you just go, okay, this is kind of stretching the limits of credulity at this point. But what's so interesting and what I like about it is that you watch this entire movie, and it's very much about, like, hey, why did the daughter die? You know, this family seems kind of haunted by her, and them kind of coming to terms with the daughter's death and that, no, there's not anything spirit, you know, spiritual or supernatural going on. And then at the very end of the movie... It shows all of those photos that we've been seeing and the the video clips that you've seen throughout of like different birthday parties and stuff where they thought she might be there, and it just pans the camera to the left and focuses on a small corner of the shot where you can see something's there and very much gives you the feeling that at the end of the movie, yes, the daughter's ghost was there the whole time. So is this a good surprise? It oh, yeah. sounds like yeah, okay. it, is so, it is. I, I couldn't tell. You said the name, and I was like. Okay, he's about to bad surprise us with a movie no, no one's ever heard of. Okay, no, um, you're good surprising us. Yes, okay. and Lake, the thing about Lake Mungo, Lake Mungo is a place where, um, in the movie, it shows like her cell phone camera. They managed to recover it out of some video that she has of them running through, and it's a like camp that they go to. Um, and while she's out there, she captures video of her own dead body after it's been drowned, like standing in the lake bed. And um, after that point, like she gets rid of all of her, you know, jewelry and stuff like that. And her driver's license and buries it. And like her mood definitely changes up until the point where she dies. So you never find out why she died. It's just this this tragedy. And at the very end, the family moves out of the house only for you to realize that the daughter is still in that house trying to be recognized by the family and not. So, absolutely love this movie totally recommend it to anybody i even have had um employees who go yeah i've never really watched a horror movie that's kind of creeped me out i go watch lake mungo here you go yeah here you go and i watch it go this was awesome so nathan what is your number two my number two uh i'll actually i'll go with i i I made a good and bad list is what i did and i'm just kind of picking the ones that i feel like fit the second category. I'll say uh, for number two, I feel like uh, adaptation. Good or bad? Good. Okay. 
Uh, the thing that surprised me... I I've, don't have to slaughter you today. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I had already seen Being John Malkovich before I'd seen, uh, before I watched, but I hadn't seen really anything else. And I was watching Adaptation and I was just blown away with one, Nicolas Cage could act. <laughs> I mean, one role is he's just playing himself like he always does. And right. then with him playing Charlie, he's, he's, re- he's really invested in the role. He's really trying to get the mannerisms of what it's like to be like a nervous, ticked writer who's kind of uncomfortable with everybody around him and never really feels like he belongs, even though he's the famous guy that everyone goes, hey, you're the awesome writer of this, right? And he still is so uncomfortable. But uh, the just, I mean, everything like from the way that they use the three-act structure to in the third act after he's met Robert McKee, Everything becomes all the shit that Robert McKee preaches. And that he absolutely decries from yeah, his brother. Yeah, which is the weird quote-unquote Donald, right. who doesn't exist in the real world, takes over the screenplay. What, and what's even better is that the um, that he Charlie wrote this as his way of coping with trying to write the book about flowers. Yeah. And made himself a fake brother to write this with. And I... I Movie turns is, the orchid thief into a heist kind yeah, of thing, it's, it's, and a drug movie, and a it's so amazing with a Deus Ex Machina and yeah, everything. Yeah, Deus Ex Alligator, yeah, <laughs> or Crocodile, Deus Ex Crocodile, wasn't it? Uh, it? The movie is so good. Um, I totally agree with you. Um, and Spike Jones. I mean, that's. I think I, if any movie of Spike Jones just just kind of stays in the canon, I, I think he won. It'll definitely be adaptation because it just it, there's great performances, there's great there's great visual ideas, there's great dialogue. There's the, great, the other you know, thing about it is it's one of those movies that you definitely need to watch more than once. Oh yeah, to um, get all the layers and details oh, yeah. and textures. Well, I mean, and, like the very opening of it is the whole dinosaur um, montage he talks about later on in the film. Yeah, and, and then and then it replays, but in a different order and with a different yeah. Right, and, and then the flowers growing at the very end of the film and yeah. Yeah, this this will work. This will work. Trying to write a movie about flowers. Nobody's ever written a movie flowers for Algernon. That's not about flowers. <laughs> of course, what I, what I love is I wonder if Charlie Kaufman actually wrote the three like as like a teenager. Like that was just like like he was it's, it's and like it's man versus machine versus horse or uh, uh, what is it? No, but but really the cop. Who's a woman is the serial killer who's a man, but it's in all in her head. And like, <laughs> you're just like most trite, cliched. And I love like there's a quote from the three in the like titles, and like they do all this stuff where like it's a very meta the, the, movie. The, the thing that's so amazing about that though is that the, if I remember right, the same year that Adaptation came out, Identity came out. It, which is exactly that plot where there's like nine different people all trapped in one psycho's body. And so he's killing them off, but he's killing off people inside his own head. Yeah. Like, okay, cool. So, and th- that's the one thing you'll see all the time now when people talk about adaptation is you mean the movie identity, right? <laughs> the only thing identity doesn't have is man versus machine versus horse, <laughs> which is one thing it definitely does need. Um, Katie, what is your number two? Um, 
I'll go with Drive because it was wonderful. Oh, uh, well, uh, Drive was actually my number one. Oh, well, good. We have something in common. Yay. So, um, what did you like about Drive? The music. Okay, cool. I'm uh, glad what, for- what did you think of the... <laughs> Uh, the disorientation where you get this very, they don't really reveal a lot about the character as far as like through dialogue. There's a lot of quiet moments, especially of the driver character who I can't remember his name. Does he even have a name? No. The driver. driver. Uh, but then you go from this movie that just seems kind of abstract to all of a sudden like. The scenes of violence are just like brutal and gory, and the blood mm-hmm. is, and it just kind of well, the, my, the my contrasting is, elements. Of, my thing is, is that I had seen most of um, of Valhalla at that point. Valhalla Rising. Yeah. yeah, I had seen all of Bronson. In fact, um, Bronson was one of my favorites that I showed even during our. Um, and I'd never seen the any of the directors' our, films. Um, so. Our movie group, um, I'd even seen Pusher way back in the day, but I uh, showed it during our movie group, and one of the guys complained, eh, it's too artsy. Like, wow. Okay, if you find Bronson too artsy. <sighs> so it should have been a natural evolution to go into Drive, especially going back and watching Bronson after Drive to know, see how he uses music in there, to go, okay, he's going to make basically an extended music video. And it just never occurred to me. I even Katie and I even watched the trailers for it, and none of that stuck in my head. Um, I think the only thing that stuck in my head and still kind of sticks in my head is him going to shake um, Albert Brooks's hands and go, "Oh, my hands are dirty, so are mine." Like that's the only thing from the trailer that sticks. Everything else was just clean slate going into the movie. I, I admit that I had some weird interpretations of stuff at the very beginning. But, you know, like whenever he goes to the grocery, he's at the grocery stores and see her, sees her car breaking or her car broken down. Um, for me, I remember, I don't, I don't think it's in there anymore, but I remember going back or hearing like police sirens, like maybe he's using them as a cover, but going back and rewatching it, I don't think I hear those anymore. Like, I don't know what I was transposing into that, but it memory was, does funny things. Yeah. So it's just one of those that absolutely love this movie. Love how quiet and understated he is. It also has Oscar Isaac, who's one of my favorite actors. Um, go ahead. He's, he's in all the things now. He, he is. He's and wonderful. He should be. He's um, very good. And, so, uh, I I found out something interesting that the only reason why they got only God forgives made is because Ryan Gosling wanted to do it, but he would only do it if the, the director would do Drive first. Nice. Interesting. So the movie that wins all the Oscar or that gets nominated for all the Oscars and all this stuff, and then they turn around and do this kind of even more surreal film, yes. and but, but everybody it, just lambasts well, it. I like, loved it, it though. The thing yeah. is, is that it feels so, so similar to Drive. And it, I mean, it's got similar color palette. It's got a similar feel but that's to it. The, that director has those that's, color palettes. He doesn't. He did not have. It, it's. It feels like they went. Okay, we're gonna do Drive. Let's keep. It's. It's like the um, band who does an album that's almost the exact same thing as their earlier work, and then you realize I didn't actually want your earlier work. I wanted you to try something new. Well, but the thing is, is I don't feel like Only God Forgives and Drive were that similar. 
I, uh, I, 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 I totally got that feeling watching it the first time. Like, oh, yeah, this is... Nah, it felt quieter. It felt more silent. It felt darker. The tone felt clearer in some ways. And, and I need to watch it again. I'm, the thing I really... The reason I want to watch it again is because, if I remember right, at the very end, it's dedicated to Yodorovsky. And seeing that, you know, now that I've watched a couple of Yodorovsky movies, makes me go... Oh, that makes sense. It, it's a let, meditation. Let me go watch it. I need to watch it again. I just have not got a chance. Not, to. And I, uh, I wish I could remember the the actors, the Indonesian actor that I can't remember his name. He's so but, good. Um, I, I did like it. So I, I do. I do like um, in um, Nicholas Winding Refn's movies how um, unsympathetic all the characters are and just shit heels. Um, and that's one of the things that I like so much about Only God Forgives. But with Drive, since we're talking about Drive, is um, absolutely love the music, love the transitions. I did get to the point where them repeating the um, all the music seemed way too on the nose. Like he's you know now that he's been cut, he's a real human being and a real hero, real human. God, being. I fucking love all the music. It's it's and beautiful music, but he is, plays it like three times. I don't care. I don't get tired of it. I love it. It's fantastic. Especially during the times where he's a real hero oh, and a real you. human but being. You're also, I'm not even going to bring that up because that's going to start another my argument. My absolute favorite part it's of that whole movie starting. is the kiss scene in the elevator. I don't care what else he's fucking done or who else he's fucking killed. I'll watch him kill everybody. Anybody who would kiss me like that? Oh my God. Let's go kill people in elevators if you'll kiss me like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pack <laughs> south. Look out. Um, so, watch, watch out for Justin and elevators, apparently. <laughs> so my number two was Killer Joe, which we have talked about, but it absolutely amazing. It's, uh, you know, Southern Noir. Um, and it's... Um, it's kind of like uh, a really artistically written grindhouse you know yeah in a yeah. way well and everybody is so morally bankrupt there's nothing for you to like the only person you do like is joe and that's because of how charismatic he is and he's fucking crazy and the girl that plays Dottie. yeah i can't remember the actress's name right now but she's actually one of the fairies in maleficent <laughs> of course she is yeah she's in the, she's a like a background character uh, in a Gino bunch of temple yeah Juno Temple. She's in a bunch of movies. Like I was oh, like yeah. I looked at her IMDb and I was like, Holy crap. Yeah. She's she's, she's everywhere. Yeah, kind of the background. Kinda of, uh, kinda of like Oscar Isaac was which I, for a while. Which I have the play right here in front of me because they had both of Tracy Litz they had like all five or six of Tracy Litz's plays at the library. And I feel sorry for every person, every soccer mom who watched August Osage County who checks out Tracy Letts plays or yeah. watches Tracy Letts written movies and goes, ah. Well, that's... Um, Frightens their sensibilities. Katie and I had an unnamed friend, which I've told this story before, but just to reiterate, since Katie's not listening to me I'm this listening. morning, an unnamed friend who decided to... Uh, she had a certain dream with Matthew McConaughey and decided to buy every single Matthew McConaughey movie, including Killer Joe. And all I could sit there was go... Let me know how that goes. How do you feel about fried chicken now? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, after she finally saw it, I was like, so, how'd you like Killer Joe? I gave it away to one of my friends. And I will. I did thumb through the play, and that really does also happen. Actually, I was really surprised at the opening scene where she's where the yeah. stepmom's supposed to be half naked. She's half naked in the play. Yeah. 
Well, I was um, really. Uh, apparently, Gina Gershon originally was approached to do the play when it first came out, and she's like, "Yeah, I can't imagine doing that to a chicken leg six times a week." Yeah, you know, yeah. That, I'm, I'm good. And then when the movie you, came, you want to know a funny person who also played Dottie? Who's that? Michelle Williams. Ah, she makes played sense. Dottie on the theater stage in 1999 when she was still doing Dawson's Creek. Okay. I and, never watched Dawson's Creek. Yeah. Yeah. It was it's just a funny thing of here's the girl. So uh, what 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 happens with the chicken leg? I haven't watched the movie. <laughs> She's a she gives a blowjob to the chicken leg. Oh, you told me about that. Yeah, you need to watch it. Yeah. It's amazing. It'll change Matthew McConaughey in your head. Um, no, which, I like him as. It's not a negative change. It's not. You just he you won't. You just be forget able to, about every rom. You just, yeah, rom com. All his rom coms. And that's, and that's the thing head. is that this is the movie where um, McConaughey decided to change from being the rom com. You know, just to Oscar bait. Yeah, to <laughs> and and we Oscar bait to him all the time. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, wow, that was that was, that was terrible. <laughs> That was terrible. But um, this is where he became, uh, as instead of Oscar bait, I would say a serious actor and started taking chances with his roles rather than just being the stoner surfer dude who plays Bongo's half naked. Well, I think he just started hanging out with Leonardo DiCaprio and DiCaprio goes, man, you got Mm -hmm. enough money. (laughs) Okay, stop. Uh, I think DiCaprio was probably like, you got enough money. Just do the crazy shit that you can't, you couldn't have done. Yeah. Let's do the crazy shit. Like, do the shit that no one expects you to do. So, what was your number one? Uh, my number one. Uh, this is a, uh, this is actually a good one. I'll, uh, I'll save the rest of them for my runners up. But, uh, the one, the movie that was so hyped and so talked about and so beaten into my head is. One of those movies that everybody has to see and is so great and it lives up in every way, shape, and form is finally seeing Citizen Kane mm-hmm. and being like... It, it really is wonderful. Oh, I I, I just bought the screenplay for three ninety nine on Kindle because <laughs> I was like, it's three ninety nine. must own. <laughs> must own Citizen Kane. Uh, but it was one of those movies that like you're watching this and going... They didn't make movies like this. They still don't even really make, make movies, movies like this. Yeah. And uh, and actually, I guess that's that's another movie that kind of gains in New York. Mm-hmm. Has some parallels to where it's very expressionist. Mm-hmm. It's very... It's not necessarily directly happening in front of you. It's not necessarily real all the yeah. time. Right. Some of it is. It's in his head. Yeah. You know, it's very obviously... It's very much trying... It's a character study. It's a, a portrait of this character, but through this lens of his own madness and his own obsession and his own drive to go from one type of person to the greatest person and to have all these, uh, have all the, the film footage and the fake news reels and to have, uh, the, him as a, the old cane and the young cane and mm-hmm. the the successful cane and the failure cane and like have him be all of these different things. And for me, the rosebud thing, eh. Everybody knows it now. That that yeah. doesn't detract to the. It, it, but it, but it, but the other thing is it's, is what really gets you is the immensity and enormity of that 
of that cave of a mansion he's right. built. And you're just like, is that because it is such a cave, the, even the most important things to him are lost. He's built such a vast empire of himself. His own, the cave of his own ego has swallowed even the things that matter to him. Even the people that matter to him. He destroys them and... In there, there's nothing left standing, and it's it was one of those movies that's like you hear about it, you hear about it, and you hear about it, and you go, well, do I really? And then you go, well, that's a fucking directorial debut, <laughs> <laughs> and then you go and watch it and go, fuck, fuck you, fuck, <laughs> fuck you. Of course, also finding out that like Orson Welles spent a couple weeks just watching all of the great movies of that time. And writing down every single thing that he liked that he did. And then using that to like take the story and then turn it into a film. And I thought that was really interesting. Especially as a theater director. Yeah. To go move from doing like stage plays and radio plays to film and just being like... <laughs> just laying it down going, here you go. But I think in some ways he was also an exceptional person. Yeah. A complete egomaniac, but but for a good reason, because he was so incredibly talented. But, and I think Orson Welles is one of those people that if you can prove that you have a certain level of talent, mm-hmm. then realistically the studio system should just go, okay, here's a budget. Do what you want. Have. We want it by this time. It can be this long. We want it by this time. But here's your budget. Make the film. And we'll see what it, see how good it is. I mean, the, the problem is, is that we run into so many directors where it's like, okay, they did really great on like a $2 million budget. Well, here's $400 million. And then it's like... Well, but that's a... That's a big jump. Yeah, and it, and it happens, you and know, it's like, what are you... But James Gunn's one of the few people that was like, okay. Yeah. But he's also 38, 39. Yeah. He's been in movies since the mid-90s. He made trauma movies. He right. Made, he made Slither. He made Super. He, but you know, the guy who... Um, what, Richard the Kelly, guy, the guy well, the I was guy, talking about. Uh, what, the guy who did Monsters, then jumped to do Godzilla, and now he's doing um, episode 9, I believe. Was he doing an episode? I thought he was doing Boba Fett. He might be doing Boba Fett. He's doing one of the movies. Because yeah. I know Ryan Johnson's doing eight. Yes. And uh, the Chronicle guy is doing the X-Wing, I think, movie. Okay. Yeah, the, so. the guy is also doing Fantastic Four. Right. Um, okay, Katie. So what was your number one movie that surprised you? The Fall. Okay, what was The Fall? It was lovely. What is it? It's a movie. Who directs? I have no idea. You're really bad at this. I am. Tarsum Singh. There we go. The guy who did The Cell. The pretty yeah. one. And and Immortals. Oh, yeah. That other pretty one. He also did Mirror Mirror. I've not yep. seen that yet. Oh, I liked it. It was so much fun. Okay. Now tell us about The Fall. It was pretty. What else? It was lovely. What's that about? A storyteller. Continue. <laughs> I don't I feel like, like I'm at a Samuel Beckett play. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> Pretty. I need more. Pretty. I don't like confrontation. This isn't confrontation. This is. Tell tell us about the story. It's this. I don't know. It was pretty. Damn it. Who stars in it? 
What's his face from Pushing Daisies? Uh-huh. Lee Pace. Lee Pace, that's it. Okay, so who, what character does Lee Pace play? Intimate conversations. I love how <laughs> you're basically going to feed me everything just so you can draw out the podcast. Okay, no, no, num- I, no, number one is The Fall, directed by Tarsum, starring Lee Pace, which I loved because the story was absolutely phenomenal and fantastic and wonderful and all sorts of other little sprinkly, sparkly little words. But primarily what I really loved was the visuals because it was an incredibly beautiful movie that he shot over four years all on location with no CG of any kind. <laughs> she knows things. And <laughs> does she know duh, I'm done. You ha- what about you, Justin? What's your number one? We've already covered my number one because you stole it. It is drive. Yeah, so what was supposed to be my number two then? You said, yeah. You said drive. Oh, okay. Yeah, but were you supposed to take drive and I was supposed to take a different number two? No. no. Okay. Yeah, we're good then. Okay. Bye. Uh, but um, so The Fall was a pretty incredible movie when I when I watched it the first time. It was the, lovely. Yeah, it, it's uh, a great movie. The basic plot of The Fall is about a Hollywood stuntman who gets paralyzed and he meets a little girl who part of the uh, charm of that movie is that the little girl is not an actress. She literally came up and just started, you know, talking to him, and he told the story to her, and all of her reactions are real, including the one moment that makes, kind of pulls the entire filmmaking thing into suspect when he has to scream at the little girl and she peed herself because she was so afraid of him. Which I think is really horrible. But everything else, all the little cute reactions, like him asking questions, are you listening to me? Huh? But uh, the basic plot of it is is that he starts telling her a story with all these you know mythological type figures, very dark, very twisted. But it's also all in service of her getting him um, morphine. I believe. Yeah, so he can commit suicide. But also, you see the story through Unfolding. the lens of her imagination, yes. which is beautiful. Which, which is also you also get the real world elements that she's taking, uh, like the fact that he calls. The Indian, and he's talking about a quote-unquote Native American trying to find his squaw. Right. But what she sees is a man from India who works at the hospital, who helps uh, right. with deliveries. Mm-hmm. And there's the... the it's, um, in that regard, it's very much um, Baron Munchausen. Yeah. Because it, it pulls all those characters in that he sees, you know. Yeah, and he he's telling of like you know of what seems to be a pretty standard story, but in her imagination, it just takes life. And because of all the locations and all the crazy sets, well, to be and fair, it has amazing costume design. It, and it it also has a very adult, dark sensibility. Like at one point, he talks about you know his, them being strung up and they're. It's a chandelier made out of bodies with no skin. It's just muscle and blood and everything. It's just like, okay, wow, that definitely did not come from this child's imagination. But also, I, uh, that's, I, I can remember being a child and being able to handle dark things oh, that yeah. I didn't necessarily know where they came from or what they were or why you could kind of... But, uh, <coughs> but I, I, the fall, and what I love is also is every type of fall. The fall of of a right. man, the fall of the horse, the fall of uh, the, their trust from each other, mm-hmm. the fall like it's it's a succession of every type of fall. Yeah. Throughout the movie, it's not just a physical fall; it's a it's a emotional fall. It's a 
it's a failure of himself as a man it's a failure of himself as a as a human being mm-hmm. you know to watch one person consume themselves with their own uh sadness and their own despair while also kind of giving hope and imagination to this child while also taking it away i mean it, it's just a it's a very very amazingly amazingly told movie it I, is it's beautiful and uh-huh. a great because you know there's a a lot of the cell is very derivative from a lot of modern artworks mm-hmm. and a lot of uh art cinema of the 90s and stuff it, like it, to the point that like it literally rips stuff off like you know damien hurst and uh, there's paintings you can find exact paintings of things that are in the movie that they stole that they give no credit to or whatsoever. I love the cell. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It is also looks you know it is also highly suspect because of it. Where the fall is much more original and much like it's much the, the, less the, stolen. The the only thing about as far as, as visuals, said, the only thing about the the fall that makes me question is the treatment of the girl you know but um that same sort of thing happened in Willy wonka where gene walder had to scream at charlie and didn't get didn't get to warn him beforehand hey i'm about to scream at you and you know felt horrible and had to go afterwards go hey man look you know we're it was just a scene sorry you know which is a hard thing to divorce as a child you know yeah um so, Dave, since he was not here, we're going to just kind of lump all Dave's his together. He's not here, man. Yeah. He's that not bastard. The, he's not the party man. Um, so, Dave's most surprising three. Number three, here's where we jump the shark, is the plot twist in the original Knights of the Old Republic video game. Um, in the Knights of the Old Republic, you start out as a, um, as some, a guy on the ship who has amnesia. You don't remember who you are. You don't really know what's going on, but you kind of work your way up through the Jedi. Um, you, st- you Like for the first six hours, you don't even have, you have vibro blades instead of lightsabers. And eventually you join the Jedi order, work your way up. Um, and you're always told about this character, uh, Revan. And, he, you know, he was a mythological figure, huge em- enemy of the Empire, um, or of the, uh, you know, it's, it's set 5,000 years before uh, the movies. Same te- same level of technology, but five thousand years before. Yes, that doesn't make y- any sense. Yes, I agree. Um, it's like the dr- them having more advanced technology, which the, only sort of makes sense because you know the de- end, there was a war yeah. for a long time. Yeah, and that's the Clone Wars what, went on for a long time, and that and that's what's going on with um, this is that it's five thousand years before all this prosperity, right after the Sith Wars, all this stuff. Um, but the big twist in the game is that once you get to a certain point, it's revealed that you are Revan and you have been playing this, uh, essentially this monster you've heard about this entire time with a chance to reshape yourself. You could have been playing evil the entire time, or you could have been playing good and go, okay, this calls into everything I've done into suspect. Um, number two was for him, um, he chose individual scenes. It looks like rather than films overall. That's okay. Yeah, as Dave is wont to do. Um, and it was the moment that Leo walks out of the um, elevator in The Departed when he has um, Matt Damon in tow. Yeah. He just gets the bullet in the head and crumples. Yeah, you you, you don't see it coming. There, There is no way. It, there's no way to see that coming. They're not telegraphing it at all. No, and you know? that that's one of those things. And he like, survived 
so many other things. Right. Where... Well, you know, it's like watching Hudson Hawk. Whenever Hudson tries to get his cup of coffee, finally, thank you. And he slowly raises up to his lips. You're like, okay, that's about to shatter. And then gun, you know, gunshot goes through. And you're like, gee, that wasn't telegraphed at all. Yeah. Not, not well, a bit. But especially because, you know. Usually it's framing of the shot and everything. And there's nothing that gives that away. Frank was dead. Yeah. Martin Sheen's character was dead. And then you're just like. What the fuck? Who, who, who am I supposed to be rooting for at this yeah. point? And um, also the fact that it's the cop that he went to the academy with. Right. Oh, <laughs> oh, it's, oh it gets me every time. Um, and then number one, um, and it's uh, here's what Dave has to say, and I'll just read it point blank because I have no commentary on this, Catherine. Surprise media for me is, and this is the honest truth, a book that Katie Tratner heard recommended. Because I'm brilliant. The Martian. Man, that was such a great book. I couldn't put it down. I mean, honestly, fantastic literary piece. I loved every moment of it. Yay! Yay! No what? more reader submissions? So uh, nope, Dave. nope, just Dave. Um, so does anybody have any honorable mentions or runner-ups? I do. Okay, what do you have? I'll just list them quickly. Uh, I would say The Truman Show was a surprising film to me because okay. I didn't expect it to be as good as I, I as I feel like it as I feel like it was uh, right you know watching the movie it was like it seemed like, oh great another dumb Jim Carrey movie with this kind of weird meta concept whatever and then watching the film I, I I found myself rooting for Truman and kind of getting into the deeper concepts and when you find out oh this is this is Peter Weir another Australian director right uh, you know who's made lots of great films and lots of art kind of those kind of movies that have an artistic, highly artistic element to them, even if they're, you know, like Master and Commander is, you know, it's right. still very much a sea, seafaring war movie, but it's like, you know, it, but, but it's amazing. But it's but it's well told and well done. Yeah. Uh, another one, uh, a good one, is Casablanca. Okay. Uh, that was one of those movies that I know I saw bits and pieces of, and bits and pieces of, and bits and pieces of as a kid, right? Because my it was one of my dad's favorite movies. And uh, when I finally sat down as an adult and watched it, and I was like, "Holy crap! This this is really, really, really good." Amazing. Uh, bad uh, Armageddon. I saw this as a teenager. It was one of those movies that, like, I it came out it's, on it, my birthday. But, it, but it's so bad that it becomes amazing. No. Yes. No. No. Yes. It's just terrible. <laughs> it, it, it turns the corner. No. It does. It does Steve work. Buscemi does not. It's not like Con Air. He hates. Steve Buscemi <laughs> saves Mad- Con Air. He gets space madness. Okay. Steve Buscemi saves Con Air as far as Michael Bay films, if we can call them films. Uh, I'm pretty sure they 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 are technically films. Yeah, because they were actually filmed on film. Right. So technically. Uh, but this was the moment, like, I remember liking Con Air, I remember liking The Rock, even when I didn't know that Quentin Tarantino wrote all the funny lines in it. I was going to say, sorry, sorry, you're saying that Peter Stormare does not save no, Armageddon. I, no, he doesn't. How, how can you say that? Because Armageddon is a terrible, terrible movie. I, it's good to know you're wrong, but... No, well, <laughs> it's good to know I'm right, but, you know, you... But it was also, but also the experience of, like, I remember it came out on my, like, it was a birthday weekend, it came out around... July 4th and went with some friends and we all just went like even the girls were like this is a piece of shit <laughs> like everyone's like this movie but is I, but I, I love you Harry 
Uh, yeah. And then the last one for me is Spider-Man 3. As far as, like, because at that point, you know, Spider-Man 1 had was good for what it was, even though I feel like, you know, after a couple of years, it didn't age very well for me, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think Spider-Man 2 still holds up. Uh, Spider-Man 2, the interesting thing is this, I didn't notice how melodramatic it was at first. The if, I was really amazed at how much the tentacle effects hold up. The tentacle oh, yeah. effects hold up oh, yeah. beautifully. The well, Doc Ock storyline still holds up. A lot of that stuff um, just works. The only thing that was hard was was the was James Franco. Yeah, I'm ruined. Well, no, no. It's all. It's I'm also. Ruined. It's also the opening. You know him, and that's one of the things that two point one fixes is their conversation at the birthday party. In the original version, it's just, oh, you've been spending time with that bug. How's that bug, Peter? Bug. And he says it like seven times in a row in like a two-minute conversation. And it's just like, okay, I get it. You don't like Spider-Man. And then 2.1 fixes that and makes the fights a little bit more vicious. But uh, overall, uh, going into Spider-Man 3, high hopes. I am one of the people that still feels like, because I love the Sandman character in the comics. And I I love those classic... He's a classic villain. He, um, for me, he should be one of those villains. He does not deserve a full movie. There's not enough motivation there. Well, but, but at the same time, I felt like I don't feel like he's as unnecessary as other people feel well, like he I'm, is. I'm not necessarily what I would put him as as a first five minutes of the movie villain that he's or, in the middle or, of fighting. You know, maybe fifteen, the first Something, fifteen yeah, minutes, yeah. just like a, uh, an introductory plot. What I could have dealt without. Personally, is his child sick? No, child and I don't wife. Care about that. well, that's that's cliches. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> that's the cliches are a part of life and a part of big budget movies. We have to deal with that, and I know that's terrible to say, but it's part of. If you want to see a movie with that's got a four hundred million dollar budget or two hundred million dollar budget, there's going to be cliches. Because uh, they have to sell it to like thirty different countries to make their money back, but. The thing for me is pretty much all of the Green Goblin stuff. Oh, yeah. The Venom stuff was... oh, Topher Grace just doesn't sell Eddie Brock to me. Especially because if you're going to do Venom, and I know apparently Venom was foisted upon them. Mm-hmm. They had to put Venom in the movie. Which, I'm sorry, if Venom was supposed to be in there, he should have been in, he should have been in two. Eddie Brock should have been in two as a character. Well, even if they... If so they, that you can get that there's someone who's a rival to right. Peter. Well, um, the thing is, is I'm totally okay with having Topher Grace as Eddie if he had had time to bulk up. Because there are stories of Eddie as a normal-sized individual, yeah. him getting fired, and then him bulking up to... And even at that point, he doesn't need to be this big roided out character like Eddie Brock traditionally is portrayed, he could just be like um, Toby is in, I think even in number one where he's just like, Oh, Hey, where'd these muscles come from? They just kind of grew overnight. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Right. But, uh, the thing is, especially as Eddie Brock, the character, like if he would have appeared in one, if he would have been the one to find the Spider-Man suit, and bring it to Jonah, and right. do all the framing of Spider-Man. You know, frame. You know, trying to frame like uh, uh, trying to show Ox the real hero and blah. blah. If you would have done that stuff in the second movie, right, it would have made the third movie 
a lot cleaner and right. he's just he's a, he wants his revenge and he keeps you know getting stifled and frustrated and finally he gets the he gets the symbiote and that would have that, that's just me. Sam Raimi actually talked on the Nerdist podcast about how right. he feels about Spider Man Three. He doesn't feel like it's a good movie. So, Katie, do you have any runners up? No. I love this woman. <laughs> um, for me, uh, this is kind of a cheat, but the Red Riding trilogy, I would say, really shocked me in, in a good way. Um, it's a trilogy about a serial killer from 1970. Peter Sutcliffe. There you go. 74. Yorkshire Ripper. 74, 78, and 83 or something like that. I can't remember the exact years. But, um, like, first movie, main character is Andrew Garfield. He's a reporter. Um, it's him kind of getting involved with all this second one is all about like police corruption which we get in the first movie and in the third movie so for me the second movie is actually the disappointment where at the end of watching it was just like i learned nothing extra and then the third movie um was also great um and then um only thing i else i could really think of was um perfume with ben wishaw is amazing like it's one of my favorite movies i watch it at least once a month um the only crime is that it has not released in america on blu-ray only way to watch it is watch it on like amazon in hd i still have a dvd copy but tom tickver yeah i still need to read that book but um i absolutely love that movie um and then dave did have some honorable mentions Number one was Primer, um, which was almost on my list as well. And he says, because time travel. Once again, he jumps the shark with Beyond Two Souls, a video game. (laughs) Which was the best cinematic game experience he's ever played. And then the opening scene of season one, episode one of True Blood, called Strange Love. Yeah. The opening opening of True Blood is, is very shocking. I don't. The only thing I is that the only thing I remember about the opening of True Blood, and I might even be wrong about this, was um, well, the first, was that the convenience store? Yeah, it's the convenience store. But then the very first scene of the like that's not the bumper because the bumper at the beginning is like two people fucking. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're like, all right, Alan Ball. I see you like naked people at the beginning of your writing. Always at the beginning. And, and Katie, what does this last sentence say? Which one? I'm not reading that out loud. <laughs> the last line from Dave was, and seeing Justin's penis. <laughs> Apparently one of the greatest surprises yeah, of his he has, life. He has to get, Yeah, there has to be at least one reference to Justin's penis per podcast, apparently. Apparently so. So uh, that is going to be it for the Dubious Consumers podcast. Um, Thank you. God. Actually, Nathan, what will be our topic for next podcast? I would say uh, best three movies adapted from either a book, comic book, or uh, foreign film. So, Catherine already has one of hers. I believe I just talked about one of mine. So, um, Well, then you can't talk about those movies. Yep, you have no well, idea what it yeah. was. But uh, I guess... Oh, uh, 
what's a movie you want to take off the table? Okay, Watchmen. Okay, so Watchmen was taken off the table. I'm pretty sure you don't like Watchmen anyway. We kind of had exactly this whole thing. why I don't. Wanna, <laughs> I don't want to have. Don't want to talk about Watchmen. Yeah. Okay. Um. Well. Once again, we are the Dubious Consumers. My name is Justin Hurd. You can find me at justindheard.com, justindheard.net, real Justin D. Hurd on Facebook, Justin D. Hurd on Twitter, Justin D. Hurd on Pinterest. Uh, also at Dubious Consumer on Twitter. Uh, so I'm going to interrupt uh, Justin's <laughs> cavalcade of self-promotion. Uh, my name is Nathan Simon. You can find me at uh, Nate Wad Neutron on Twitter. And at Nate Wad, I've been saying Nate Wad Neutron, and it's just Nate at Nate Wad on Tumblr. So okay, as I'm, well as on on Facebook at Doomiest Consumer and Twitter at Doomiest Consumer. As a, as a, as a, I did just remember, I am also on Tumblr at Justin D Heard. <laughs> you can of also course he is. you can also find me. Sorry, I, I just remembered this. I always forget this. You can also find me at JustinHerd.com and JustinHerd.net. Holy fuck, Justin! Where can people contact you, Katie? You can't. Oh. She's a dirty liar. Um, her website is <laughs> KatherineTratner.net and at K underscore Tratner on um, Twitter. I don't know any of the rest of her stuff. You can find that through all the assorted links. Merry Christmas. Yay. So, so do you have a final thought, Justin? Fuck. <laughs> Chain. It wasn't easy.